On this special episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we visit the New York State Association of ASC's 2023 Annual Conference held October 4th through the 6th, 2023 in Albany, New York, and we interview various speakers and the leadership of the association. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 202 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for October 4th through 6th, 2023, recording from our mobile studio at the Desmond Hotel in Albany, New York, during the 2023 New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's annual conference. This is Sue Cronkite, co-host of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape, and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by the relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry. He is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we're, we're back home. We're actually recording mm-hmm. a couple weeks after the conference because we had some problems with the, uh, the editing. There's a, the, the, I think this is the most interviews we've ever done mm-hmm. uh, for mm-hmm. a conference. I think there's 10 interviews here yep. uh, if we're able to include all of them. So uh, um, it, was a, it was a great conference and probably one of the best um, – one of the nicest venues at the Desmond Hotel in Albany, um, a place that has just gone through a major renovation, a really mm-hmm. great conference space. And we were given a uh, – a room that was labeled the studio uh, yep. to uh, record from. So it was, a, it was a great room. We brought our our full-fledged uh, mobile studio, and uh, we recorded from there. But uh, this section, at least, is being recorded from our home studio. So mm-hmm. you'll probably notice a difference in the in the quality of the interviews as compared to what we're recording right now. But uh, we uh, we do want to thank everybody at the Desmond Hotel as well as all of the, the people at the New York State Association. Um, and uh, they did a great job pulling together this conference. It was mm-hmm. probably uh, – well, it was a record-breaking attendance and record-breaking number of exhibitors. And I will say – 
I had a lot of fun. Uh, there was great food. There was a lot of socializing mm-hmm. with other members. Uh, we, Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, had a very large presence, uh, including the podcast mm-hmm. there. I think we had, I think, was it about 14 or 15 people? I think so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And indeed, uh, we even had Christina Benton, one of our mm-hmm. uh, dear friends who you see and here periodically on the podcast and, and some of our uh, virtual conferences. And then we uh, we also did a uh, pre-conference, Ambitory Healthcare mm-hmm. Strategy sponsored, and the podcast sponsored a pre-conference uh, on the Wednesday before the conference actually kicked off. Uh, we had an uh, annual client meeting uh, in the morning and in the afternoon. We did three presentations um, mm-hmm. with AEU credits. So you could get another three credits if you uh, if you were there for the pre-conference. And during the pre-conference, we had a session from Lori Rodericks on infection control. Christina Benton did a section on HIPAA, which was talking about some of the current issues in HIPAA. Mm-hmm. Something we had talked about, Sue, remember the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the whole issue of uh, our Alexas and yeah. our uh, series um, listening to us and perhaps mm-hmm. causing a HIPAA problem. Yep. And, and then, poor Christina, because there was some sort of a, a test. I don't know if it was a New York State um, emergency broadcast oh, yes. or whatever it was called. No, it was a national, so, yeah. national thing. So everybody's cell phone went off kind of sporadically. It was paced out over a few minutes yeah. <laughs> during her session. She thinks that I so. did that on purpose uh, <laughs> for <plan>. her. <laughs> yes. And then that I did, was a really good talk. Oh, it really it was good. good. And and as well, we talked a little bit about that, and I, I think, Sue, so we, we should try to get her on one of our podcasts mm-hmm. to talk about HIPAA. It's one of those areas that yes. we tend to ignore because we think everybody knows about HIPAA, and that was one of the things she had mm-hmm. actually brought up during the conference. Well, like you said, as electronics become more of a yeah. thing, and just as everything changes, I feel like with infection control, we always feel like there's new information and we're learning new things. And people don't think of HIPAA that way, but it is. Right. There's always new things you have to be aware of. Right. Especially, as we well know, my watch t- sometimes talks to me, and mm-hmm. I don't even know how I get it to talk to me. <laughs> um, and then I did a presentation about recent trends in accreditation and surveys, and I, I made a record for myself. Uh, usually I go five or ten minutes over, but I went 45 minutes over um, on that presentation. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a good record or a bad record. But no one laughed uh, except to go to the bathroom. Of course, those that went to the bathroom never came back. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but you're sticking it, with that story. I'm sticking <laughs> with that story, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we ended up being kicked out because there was another group mm-hmm. in afterwards. But it just shows how 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 much pe- – you know, we really didn't have strict deadlines there because I was mm-hmm. the last speaker and uh, – um, you know, people really wanted to talk about what's going on in the accreditation world. And we're going to yes. talk about that a little bit in the podcast, too, that there's a lot of things going on in accreditation. There's a lot of options now that we didn't have before. And, of course, a lot going on with surveys. We had a lot of good presentations. Uh, I did three sessions, which I didn't uh, – so I didn't do – I didn't interview myself. Uh, so I'll just <laughs> mention mine before we get into the actual interviews. But we had a uh, panel discussion that I participated in on about what it takes to build a successful future together, talking about the future of ambulatory uh, surgery and uh, from a perspective of an owner of a surgery center, from a regulatory perspective – uh, as well as you know, from the perspective of the association and what it can do for our members, and then we had a panel discussion about the association's uh, quality committee uh, activities. I'm a member of the quality committee, and I uh, uh, moderated a session with uh, the members of the committee where we talked about our first quality benchmarking study on wait time. Uh, and we're in the process of publishing the QI study uh, template that we've prepared for uh, centers to use as part of the QAPI program. It seemed to be quite a bit of very positive um, um, feedback on the, on what we presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't sent it out to anybody yet because we're still f- – you know, fine-tuning it. Uh, but And then we had a lot of great feedback on some potential uh, future uh, QI 
studies and um, and benchmarking studies. So uh, stay tuned if you're a member of the state association. And then I did a presentation in Article 28 regulations where I outlined all of the relevant New York State licensing requirements for ASCs under the Article 28 regulations. Um, and I'm thinking about doing a virtual conference for other members of the uh, uh, on this presentation, perhaps a little longer to co- you know cover the topic better. It really was mm-hmm. uh, very cramped uh, to uh, talk about the the breadth of these regulations in only a uh, one hour format. Uh, so we're going to see if we can do that and make that available again to members of the state association. So our first interview was with John Van Balkenberg, the president of the state association, and Jeffrey Flynn, uh, the vice president. Uh, and they talked about the association and membership and the legislative achievements. And and by the way, Sue, Jeff, when we interviewed him, did not know that he was about to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, this year. And uh, so it was interesting. Three of us in the room mm-hmm. uh, when we were doing the interview had been uh, previous and current award uh, winners. So uh, mm-hmm. John got it in 2021. I got it in 2022. And, and now Jeffrey got it in 2023. Mm-hmm. And none of you knew ahead of time. That none of us knew ahead of time. Surprise, Apparently kind of you nice. knew, though, uh, when mm-hmm. I got it last year, because you yes, had to make sure that I was going to be there, I guess. So. <laughs> like you uh, would ever miss <laughs> this, this association but, meeting. It's so but, important. But yes, yeah. And I Jeffrey uh, was, uh, he's been really uh, quite instrumental in rebuilding the conferences. And uh, he's been, uh, he, he was certainly the, the deserving of it. And uh, we appreciate all the hard work he put into it. So let's listen to that interview. It is October 2023. I'm here at the New York State Association. We're just kicking off the New York State Association meeting in Albany, New York. And I have my dear friends, John Van Valkenburg and Jeffrey Flynn, um, president and vice president of the New York State Association. Welcome to uh, the podcast here. And we haven't even really started the conference yet. yet, And uh, and we have you here to talk about uh, what's going on. So, um, Jeffrey, why don't we start with you? Talk a little bit about the program, about the uh, you know the everything that went into the event uh, here in Albany. Yeah, this is our best attended conference ever. We have the most exhibitors we've ever had. But the program we wanted to offer to the um, our members was the future. We wanted to right. talk about future procedures, uh, threats that go into surgery centers that today that we have to challenges we have to face, and kind of facing it all together and. The program is set up to have those discussions as we go through. Right. And as you said, this is the biggest conference we've uh, we've done. I mean, this is the organization is 34 years old now, 33, 33 years old now. And uh, we, we're back to Albany. We've, we used to be here quite a bit. Uh, what do you think? Uh, why is it important to be here in Albany? I think the difference this year is we transformed to one annual conference because right. we do want to really focus on our regions working together. And I think just Albany seemed to be the perfect center of place to come back to. Right. And this place really worked out well for us, the Desmond. Yeah, the Desmond. Uh, of course, I've been coming here when I was the president. This was one of our main sites back in the 90s here. John Van Valkenburg, uh, you uh, accepted the presidency again. I don't know if accepted is the right term. Um, but uh, congratulations on being uh, re- remaining the president here. Tell me about what has uh, w- what the last year has been as president of the state association. You claim to work for a surgery center, but I, yeah. I hear more about your work here than in the the surgery center. Yeah, you know it's uh, it's it, it's been another challenge. You know, it's it's interesting. It's like another year, another challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously. Uh, you know, the past several years being the president of the organization have, have been a challenging, and there was always the big focus on COVID, right? And there was a lot we did around supporting uh, facilities with that. And, uh, and now, unfortunately, it seems like that's having some effect on us again. But now there's all these other challenges that have presented, you know, the 
staffing, uh, right. staffing challenges have been huge recently and not just staffing, but, um, escalating costs. Right. Um, and a lot of that revolves around staffing and staffing shortages, escalating costs. And then one thing that's really become, and we're going to talk about it at this meeting, but anesthesia, yeah. um, I mean, it's really become a crisis. And I think a lot of us, uh, myself included, uh, in my role as a, as a facility, um, just did not see it coming right. at, at all. I mean, of all the challenges, you know, that we were expecting and there, you know, there's been, there's been all this optimism and I'm still, you know, cautiously optimistic about a lot of things that are going on in, in this industry and in this space, but, um, but just kind of got hit out of nowhere with that. And that's, right. it's proven to be a big, a big issue because, um, and not to get too far into it, but uh, you know, the, the, the margins in surgery centers, yeah. um, you know, because of our reimbursement and, you know, they've always been, uh, you know, good, but because we're efficient, you know, because right. our costs are controlled and with staffing costs increases increasing. And now, um, you know, having to support, uh, anesthesia in a facility, you know, the margins aren't there to do that. Yeah, so it, 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 it becomes line. this yeah. unique business challenge. Like right. the whole model has become challenged of yeah. an ASC, to be honest with you. That's how I feel anyways. And, and, um, and, you know, I think, um, you know, it's going to have to be, figured out somehow because it is, it's creating a, a, a crisis, not just for ASCs, but for healthcare in general access. Yeah. And you, you brought something up early and we talked about this at the board meeting yesterday that, um, and which really gets to the heart of why we're here and what we're talking about and why it's important to be a member of the state association is that, uh, this anesthesia crisis, it was brewing, mm -hmm. right. And then it became a crisis. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't like a slow burn up it was, okay, this was a problem, a problem, a problem, and then suddenly it became a crisis. Right. And uh, we had to react very quickly. You know, uh, on our program committee, for example, we immediately, you know, sought out some of the major speakers to talk about different aspects of that. Um, but talk talk a little bit about how, both, both of you can talk about how important it is, you know, to the membership to have access to a resource such as the New York State Association to be able to suddenly discover that you might have a problem coming and then what you do about it. You know, the big shock I had is uh, John and I went to the fly in in Washington for the lobby in Washington in February. Yeah. I hadn't heard of the anesthesia right. crisis and right. that it had hit him just right smack. Yeah. And then when I got back, you know, by June it hit me. Right. So it really did happen exactly as you're saying. And it's important to be part of the organization because it's those kind of conversations start a heads up and what can we mm -hmm. do to mitigate the, threat that's against us with anesthesia crisis. Right. Right. And, 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 and not just, so there, there's a couple of parts to that. It's, you know, being able to identify those problems be, or those issues coming, because again, when we're, when we're networking, when we're talking, when we're having these events, when we're having our biweekly phone calls, when we're having some of the other uh, things that I'm sure we'll talk about that we've gotten into uh, as an association, but you know, you learn from each other. Um, and then you also lean on each other and, and, help solve challenges that we each have. I mean, we all have unique challenges to our own facilities, but there's a lot of challenges that we all share. And, you know, I, I know, you know, this John, um, and, and probably anybody that works in an ASC is very uh, acutely aware of this, but you know, we don't always have a lot of resources. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, it, a lot of times it's, it's kind of us and it, sometimes it feels like it's just us and we're alone. But when you're involved in the association, when you're coming to these meetings, it's really not, I mean, you have all these colleagues, um, you know, that you work with, that you, that you talk to on a regular basis, that if you're having a problem, you can reach out to them and say, Hey, you know, yeah. are you having this problem as well? What are you doing about it? Um, and, and that's really what's been great about 
just being involved in the association and now becoming a leader of the association. I mean, I really, you know, we haven't, this is the first time we've gotten together as a state in a year since we've gone yeah, to, yeah. to one annual meeting. And it's interesting. Some of these people, you know, I, we talk to them regularly, but this is my first time seeing them in a year. And it's right, kind of, right. it's, it's, it's like a reunion. So it's, it's like we never, like we hadn't been apart. Yeah. And it's really, it's, yeah. it's really nice to see everybody in person and come to the meeting. And again, uh, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I, I'm really excited about the event. Like you said, we haven't really gotten started yet, yeah. but we're kicking it off this morning. And, uh, I'm just really looking forward. Of course, to we've it. been here for two days, so it yeah. seems like we've <laughs> been here already. <laughs> right? yeah, we've been, and, and so uh, that that um, camaraderie part. I mean, the conference. You know, I'm chair of the education committee, and you know, we're all all three of us are involved in the conference committee here. Um, the uh, you know the conference material is extremely important, but there's a lot more going on here during the event um, that's important, and, and a big part we just talked about is you know getting to know your colleagues, turning to the person next to you when you're you know, sitting, waiting for a, a session to start and at lunch and at dinner and, you know, whatever, those conversations are extremely important because those people become, you know, valuable resources to you in the future. Absolutely. And that's why we want to really focus to get people in the regions to really know their neighbors, because yeah. it is key that this conference, 90% of the people attending this conference, this is the only conference they're going to. Right. The only time they're able to get out of their silo and really get educated by talking with with our fellow members, but also educated by the exhibitors. Right. Mm -hmm. I, and, and let's talk about the exhibitors because mm -hmm. that's another important part of it. The, they're not just here trying to sell a product. They're no, trying they're to sell to solutions. Solutions yeah. for all of us. And it's great. The number of vendors we have, we have 45 vendors here this mm -hmm. year. That's the most we've ever had. They come from all different walks of the um, medical field yeah. and different solutions. So therefore, I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to be educated today. Um, there's one company here just in, has been a resource that I know our centers have used, the ever-ending Sparks report that we yeah, always yeah. feel is a big thing. There's a company now that actually can help us do that <clears throat> right. and, and is now showing up at the conference and you know being out there. I'm proof that they actually have removed one headache from right, me. Right. So, I mean, it's just resources like that. If we can kind of focus and educate each other about those resources and what's out there because again, as we're talking about staffing issues, there are certain things now we're looking at outsourcing is now no longer an option. Right. We're having to do it because we're not getting staff for things. And with regards to the exhibitors, you know, another thing that um, that I'm 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 happy about and have been really pleased to see is uh, this is the most ever. So obviously we have a lot of new ones, but the same ones keep coming back. Right. You know. Right. So and and we're happy to have them, and they're happy. They're obviously happy to be here, and yeah. you know they've they've found this event to be. Uh, to be valuable to them that they're willing to support it. So, uh, you know, we certainly appreciate that. Yeah. And again, it, it makes me happy that, uh, you know, we're not having to go find new ones every time, you know, that we yeah. are, it is a mutually beneficial relationship. And we know that we have a lot of, uh, of listeners that are vendors here. When I was in Ohio, a couple of people came up to me and said, how do I get in to the New York state association meeting? Because because uh, we we sell out you know frequently I mean we keep expanding the number of pe <laughs> options that are available uh, and but my advice to everybody and I'm sure your advice is to uh, you know call Jeffrey tomorrow and <laughs> because we're already planning for next year oh absolutely you know, and absolutely. you and, and of course there's opportunities throughout the year now with these regional meetings so um, <clears throat> the state is uh, is broken down into what we call regions. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are leaders uh, on the board in each of the regions that uh, put together, you know, regular, I, I, I would say uh, periodic meetings that eventually become regular, but it's been an experiment, highly successful mm -hmm. experiment uh, throughout 2023. 
Uh, they're on a little bit of a hold right now because, of course, we got this big conference. And uh, but as soon as we're done here, I know in the Western region we're party animals out in the Western region. <laughs> so you know we'll be getting together very shortly to uh, to plan the next one. So talk a little bit about those regions and the importance think, and how everybody can participate yeah. in them. <clears throat> the centers can actually participate, but as we've talked about, now we want to make it educational opportunities right. for the rank and file that can come to the conference, right. whether doing virtual. Uh, things at the end of the day that actually give our staff education and give them a certain meaning that right. you're part of a bigger process going forward and the importance of their job and the education. And then perhaps also just going in to see other centers. What I did notice, and I was speaking this morning um, about, is that I noticed the most successful of our regional events has been when they've been hosted in a surgery center, yeah. because all of us are very interested in going into other centers just right. to seeing them. And I think that during the next year, that's something we should be encouraging to have those each center kind of do open houses right. in their regions so that we get to know each other and then rely on each other. In New York City, it just happens to be easier we're condensed, but right. there's, you know, to be able to call up and borrow something or to be able to um, oh, valuable. get yeah. a policy because it's very specific to New York, right. just to be able to call somebody. And know that they're not you. They're your colleague. They're not right. your competitor. They want to help you out. They want to, yeah. they, when you do better, they do better. And we, we always want to get more physician participation in the state association. We have more physicians here than we've ever had in the state association. We have five CON yeah. holders here. Yeah. So that's amazing that we've had that many. And and you'll see that they now are seeing the importance to do it and yeah. getting them to talk to the other owners to see how it's important to be right. along in the organization is essential. And we're actually going to interview two of them yes. uh, during this thing. To get their view of what uh, what is important to them and what they're looking for here, and and, and my point about bringing it up when I talk about regionals is that the doctors love seeing the other surgery centers. Oh, absolutely! So if you want to uh, to get uh, doctors to participate, you know, tell you're going to do it at their competitive compete, or let them be the host oh, and, and show off their their site. <laughs> Lastly, let's just talk a little bit about the other activities that don't happen during the conference and and uh, you know during these regional meetings because this this organization is is meeting on a regular basis. John, why don't you talk a little bit about our regular, you know, uh, uh, conversations? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, a couple different uh, things that that we do, you know, to support our members. A big one is our biweekly calls. Right. Uh, so every other Friday afternoon, uh, we get together for a call. It's about uh, to depending yeah. on what's going on, but typically it's about 30 minutes or so. Yeah. And it's really just, we, we get an update from Capital Health Consulting on what's going on legislatively. So right. it's a legislative update, but it's also an opportunity to talk about, you know, what's going That's on, really you hot. know, ongoing issues, yeah. new issues, um, and, and just kind of get together. Um, another thing, in addition to the regional meetings, which has been a great initiative, um, a new thing that our, our membership committee and our membership committee has done a great yeah. job this year putting together initiatives to try um, to grow our membership, but also to add value um, to have membership in the association in addition to all these other things. But we um, they started an administrators club. Right. And this is something, again, it was a new initiative. The plan is to do it quarterly. We just had our first one um, last month. But what it is, is it's an opportunity, a little bit more of an open forum type of thing as compared to what our biweekly update calls, but where everybody, um, you know, around lunchtime, you know, for an hour or so get together on a Zoom call. You know, we've kind of come up with a topic, but it's kind of open-ended. It's an opportunity for everybody just to talk, you know, network and, and, and really, you know, share some ideas um, about, you know, how to address some of the challenges we're having. And so we had our first one last month. Um, I thought it was very successful. It was well attended. Um, we've had good feedback of it and we'll be planning, um, we'll be planning the next one 
probably and December can be tough because of the holidays, but right, in right. December or January will uh, will be the next one, and we're really looking forward to that. Highly attended too. I mean, yeah. it's, it seems to me like virtually every member is is on that call for at least a few minutes to mm-hmm. you know find out what's going on. Uh, and and lastly, uh, you know, New York is not alone in this country. You know, they've banded together for various initiatives over the year during the pandemics. You know, the the tri-state area, for example, came together and and worked on on things. So. Um, New York, uh, Virginia, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Texas got together in June to do the multi-state in cooperation with the ASC podcast. Planning for the uh, the multi-state is uh, June 2024, already in place, and we're looking to double the number of states. So thank you so much for being one of the supporters for that. And that is a free uh, 16 credit hours, two day virtual conference that's available to anybody that's a member. So if you're a CASC or CAPE certified and you're a member of the New York State Association, you can really get all of your credits you need for your three-year cycle through uh, the New York State Association, through the various things that oh, they offer. Absolutely. And then the <laughs> other important thing is new initiatives that we're working on, like in, right. in speaking with those other states and right. getting involved, like a real initiative this year is going to be trying to get cardiac into the yep. surgery centers. And, you know, we're looking towards Texas because they actually have it in right. place. And we, they've actually opened up two of the surgery centers down there to speak with us about what we yeah. need to do to get go forward. Also, uh, California has also right. been very generous in giving us information as to how we should start the process as they're going forth to write themselves. Well, I think it's important as our organization, as the state associations uh, continue or try to grow through this difficult time is to, to share resources as much as possible. Absolutely. And, and, and John, thanks for bringing up, you know, that multi-state conference. Uh, you know, we appreciate your organization uh, putting that together and the podcast, putting that together and your support of our organization and giving another opportunity, like I mentioned, um, other opportunities for our members to uh, some value added uh, things with the membership. And and also I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, um, you know, everything you do with the podcast. Um, Congratulations on the 200th episode. I listened to that on my drive (laughs) up yesterday. yesterday. It was a two and a half hour drive. So it was perfect. Were you able to get through it? I can't remember. I I was, I was, I was, it was, it was great. And, and again, I, I I enjoy listening to it and, um, and I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to have us on the podcast and we're, we're happy to be on it. I think this is probably our fourth or fifth oh, year easily uh, yeah. time you know being on the podcast yeah, i think you've been on every year actually yep. since oh. we uh, we yeah. started because you're you're kind of and and that just does bring up an important point we we know that you are so busy in the centers that you can't get everybody out maybe the you maybe i mean we got people have four people here you know we got 15 yeah. people from amateur <laughs> elkers race but we got people that have four people i don't know how the average surgery center can do that you know they're lucky if they can get one out so one of the things that we are committed in the state association is not only offering opportunities here for the leadership but to get it down to the people that really need that work and that's where the multi-state comes in that's where these regional meetings mm-hmm. come in the regional meetings are all after hours so if you can drag, you know, maybe give the guy or gal a, you know, a couple hours off, uh, you know, on another day and bring them out to this so that they can listen to an hour of whatever we have. We talked about maybe doing some life safety, talking, uh, you know, a, a couple different topics that, that we talk about in the board meeting and that, that we work on in the education committee and make sure we're offering it throughout the state. So absolutely. And we, just to add, you know, your podcast actually the unique thing about that compared to other groups that have tried to do it also is that yeah. you actually address the real issues that we're facing in the centers because you're yeah. in the centers, your people are in the centers and you find out what the issues are and you really keep focusing on it. So thank you for doing that because it oh. allows other people the opportunity to start to learn. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I know I got another interview coming up soon and you got to kick off the meeting in a few hours or an hour. <laughs> thank you, John. Thank you thanks. very much. Take care. Sure. Thanks. 
Then we have an interview with Mark Beckman. He's a lawyer that was uh, speaking about the the legal side of anesthesia services, especially in light of all of the uh, the problems that we're having with anesthesia right now, the anesthesia crisis, which was a, a major focus of this conference. I'm here at the New York State Association of Amateur Surgery Center's annual conference in Albany, New York, and I have Mark Beckman here with CCB Law. I have a long history with CCB Law, and my dear friend Bruce Smith, uh, who I've known for many, many years, could not make it because I understand he's got a big birthday right now. Uh, so yeah. so he, he assigned you to do this. He so. did. I think he's... Uh, on a camel somewhere in the oh, Sahara Desert. Well, that sounds like that sounds like a lot of fun if you like deserts. If that's uh, what you're into. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when I when I talked to Bruce and you and I hadn't actually talked directly, but when I talked to Bruce, I said, "Give me a fun title for probably a boring." You know, a topic. It's not going to be boring, but oh, no. the it, it could. The world is fast. <laughs> That's right. So uh, he came up with the title: "No Gas, No Cash: Adventures in ASC Anesthesia." So, and what we're talking about now, we've been talking during the entire conference so far, and it's only half a day gone about the what we're referring to now as an anesthesia crisis. Uh, we know that uh, you know anesthesiologists, anesthesiologists are short supply. Many of our surgery centers, maybe I'm assuming many of our listeners are, are getting notices, you know, to uh, that they're no longer going to have the support of the anesthesia group they had before. So, looking alternatives, or looking at opportunities out there uh, to change their existing models, and sometimes they're being forced to do that. So that that's where you come. Uh, so, yeah, and I wish we had answers. Yeah, we, 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 I guess that's one thing we should stay. We're fielding right? more questions than having answers at this yeah, point. Yeah, um, uh, and and <laughs> I think it's a testament also to how fast the world of healthcare can yeah. change. Right, it wasn't that long ago uh, where the rules were reversed. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, and also, uh, you know, different specialties are are feeling it differently. Right. Right. Uh, and so some of the models that would work for orthopedics may not work for uh, cataract surgery centers. Yeah, yeah, because the reimbursement for the physi- the anesthesiologist there. Well, and, and it varied. So, and, and you know, yeah. the case mix is so much different, you know, for orthopedics than it yeah. would be for, let's say, a, surgery, a center that does cataracts all day long, right? And so the, right. the variance is very different. So you might use a different model to address that situation. Yeah. So, so many, many of our listeners really don't understand, you know, the the financial model behind anesthesia, and for that matter, they might not have ever been involved in negotiation of the anesthesia contract, uh, and that it never becomes an issue until the until day, it is, it, right. right? Until it is. Um, so they didn't spend a lot of time reading those contracts, you know, finding out how how long they would have to find another anesthesia provider. So. Um, so that's why I think, you know, we, we've approached this from, you know, the anesthesia provider standpoint, tell us what's going on with your, their side, you know, from the administrator side standpoint, what happens when you get the notice. And now with you, we're dealing with it really from the legal side. Well, you know, I think it's a great them. point, though, that you yeah. make is that so many of these contracts were entered into years ago, put yeah. in a drawer and nobody ever looks at it. Right. And, and when you know the market is changing, it's not a terrible idea to pull out some of those contracts yeah. so you're aware and it can at least act proactively yeah. if you need to. Uh, if there's an opportunity for planning, you, you know what it is. Uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, in, in our business, we are often dealing with uh, addressing something that's already happened. Yeah. And, and it's you know, too late. there's nothing you yeah. can do about it. Right. And, and, and so if you can at least take action in advance and, and maybe address some of these contracts in a way that gives you more protection yeah. for... The roller coaster that we're all on that might not be a terrible idea so let's start with that is because even those organizations that are not going through an anesthesia crisis yet 
you know, there's a good chance that they will in the future. When they're looking at that contract, what should they be looking at? Even even if there's if they recognize just because they know they can't change it doesn't mean they don't look at it and understand what the risks are. What are they looking for? Well, one of the things I know um, is a common misperception. For example, is uh, you know I have a five year contract. Yeah. Well, what does the termination provision say? Yeah. Right? Is the termination provision say that that any party can get out of it on much less notice, sixty days, right. ninety days, hundred twenty days? That's the real term of your agreement. Yeah. Right? Uh, the days of a no-cut contract, if you would, are, I think are over. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there's also some of the more objective versus subjective uh, provisions that you might want to take a look at. So uh, as an example, do you have other opportunities to um, ensure that the anesthesia services are going to be acceptable to your surgeons? Yeah. You know, are they... Is there a clause, for example, that requires the anesthesiologist to work harmoniously? And that's a very subjective term, mm -hmm. harmoniously with the surgeons. And what happens if they don't? You know, mm -hmm. what, what's your recourse? Uh, disruptive physicians, that's a, yeah. that's a real issue in healthcare. And um, you want to be prepared for the what ifs in that respect. You know, can, you know, even if it's not a breach of the agreement, do you have some rights? Yeah. Well, and you bring up an interesting point. Interesting point, also from uh, you know from that standpoint, is that uh, what happens when uh, the doctors disagree about the care of a particular patient, or they feel like the anesthesiologists are being too strict about the you know the the uh, the patients that they want to be seen at the surgery center. Those are things that should be dealt with in that yeah, contract. That's a big issue, and 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 also depends on who, who's the supervising physician. Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, the surgeon has taken on that responsibility in that instance, they obviously mm -hmm. need to ensure that they have the last say because right. they're ultimately the responsible, you know, with a CRNA, for example. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When they're not, when, when Which you don't is have very common, system, right? Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about some of the, or talk a lot about <laughs> some of the other models that are out there. You know, the traditional model is that you, uh, you, you don't even hire you, you have a contract with an anesthesia group comes in, they provide anesthesiologists, and you don't, I mean, that's kind of it, you know, they, right. you know, you've appointed a, a chief of anesthesia and uh, everything else is taken care of, but that world is changing very right. like dramatically. In a, in, a, in, a, in a traditional hospital, right? Yeah. There'd be the surgeon comes in, he does his thing. The anesthesiologist, she comes in and she does her thing. They really yep. don't have a relationship, a, a contractual relationship with each other. They're right. just members of the same medical staff. And they're both billing independently Correct. and there's no, uh, there's no financial relationship. And so it wasn't either. that long ago that, you know, in some specialties, for sure, the um, surgeons were wanting to uh, own a anesthesia practice yeah. right, separately, or they were managing that practice for a mm -hmm. fair market value fee. Um, now, as, as you know, it's it, the tide has turned a little bit. And, and, and so one of the things that I would suggest is, can you make your anesthesiologist your partner, mm -hmm. right, and, and and feel like your partner in some way, so that whichever way it ends up going in the next five years, you're in it together. Yeah. Um, but but some of the models would, would include fixed subsidy. They would include income guarantees. Right. They would case guarantees, uh, recruitment assistance. Yeah. You know, all of which have to be properly documented and evaluated mm -hmm. for fair market value because of uh, anti-kickback statute right. concerns in particular. But uh, they can all be done if done correctly. 
Yeah. And uh, and having a lawyer involved as a trusted advisor throughout this whole process always, is important. Always. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. would never hear me say no, otherwise. No, I know. But, but honestly, we would rather yeah. be in a position where we're your partner also. Yeah, right. right both and that we may not have the answers, but we can help walk you through yeah. the issues and we can talk about them together. It, you know, too often we're, well, this happened. Now yeah, what do I do? Right. That's right. I say, well, it's too late to do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, there's always something that can be done, but you know, you'd rather be proactive than reactive always. So there's, there's, you know, a lot of conversation right now about, um, about the movement away from anesthesiologists since they're so hard to find and then movement, movement towards CRNAs, which by the way, they're hard to find too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, this, but, um, you know, but many centers have relied on anesthesiologists over the years and have had to consider changing that structure and perhaps not even ever having an anesthesiologist involved. Maybe the, like in the state of New York where, you know, we're talking right now, um, you know, the, uh, the CRNA has to work under the auspices of a physician, be it an anesthesiologist or the physician, the operating room physician. Right, every state's going to be different on that right, issue. Right. You know, now, in New York, technically, um, to my knowledge, there isn't a uh, ratio that's specific. That's- but the insurers, you know, are changing those ratios. So yeah. where it might have been one in four for certain insurers, mm-hmm. maybe now it's one in three, right? And so that's going to also dictate the market. Right. And I, I also should mention here, whenever you're making any changes to the anesthesia services that you're offering, you need to make sure that your malpractice carrier is well aware of, of that too. It's one of those things that they kind of, the last thing they think about and then, you know, you never well, want to run I, yeah, into a situation. It's interesting you say that because I fielded a question at the conference today about that. And it's not self-effectuating, right? It's yeah. your responsibility to tell them right. typically under your contract. They, yeah. They're only going to know what you tell them. Yeah. And then they will hold what you don't tell them against you. That's right. Well, this happened back in the t- day when we were doing uh, LASIK surgery and surgery centers. People just said, well, it's just a natural place to start doing it. Let's just start doing it. And then they found out that, well, they never not- notified the insurance company and they weren't covered from a malpractice standpoint for that, right. you want to avoid those situations. So what do you think we're heading? If you know, uh, you're going to notice that the uh, anesthesia group is, is pulling out and they say, we're going to, whatever that term says, you know, whatever that contract says, yeah, it doesn't matter what it's 30, 60, 90 days, 90 days might still not be enough. What, what, are, what do they need to be doing, um, you know, to protect themselves? I, I mean, one thing obviously is to make sure they look at that contract first, but. Well, I mean, again, if you can lock them up, right. Yeah, and if yeah. you, and, and this is where you'd rather negotiate while you're still friendly Friend, yeah. than, than not where, or they've gotten a better opportunity somewhere and it's too late. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe lengthen those terms, lengthen those, uh, notice provisions and sweeten the pot a little bit, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, again, talk about expansion, talk about recruitment systems. You know, if yeah. you're seen as their partner, maybe you'll, you'll gain some goodwill that way. The other thing, one of the things that I, uh, I don't know what the future is going to hold because of uh, what's going on at the federal level with the FTC, you know, we mm-hmm. are seeing some heightened enforcement mm-hmm. against um, some national anesthesia company providers maybe whether they're in um, private equity backed or, or otherwise, where if they've been asserting their uh, market leverage mm-hmm. to the point where uh, insurers get upset, yeah. the first place they run is to the government and cry any antitrust. And we yeah. are seeing there was a case just um, a couple of weeks ago uh, reported in the New York Times and in Texas about the FTC bringing an actual lawsuit now against, I think it's uh, 
U.S. anesthesia partners mm -hmm. and, and naming their private equity-backed um, um, back, you know, transaction partners. Mm -hmm. uh, so even though uh, the cases in Texas, the private equity company was in New York. And so oh. we're going to see some news about that as well. And yeah. I think I was at a conference last week with a lot of DOJ and OIG people telling me to expect more of the same. Yeah. So yeah, you're so that might change the, the market again. Right. What do you, so what, what are you seeing with regard to uh, ASCs and the uh, the owners of the ASCs? You know, uh, hiring ASCs or CRNAs directly um, is you know what what is the complexity of that? How does that work? You know, is that an option? Is it a viable option? What risk might they it, have? It's it's definitely a viable option, but you know the other thing that you're seeing at the same time is um, restrictive covenants yeah. maybe going away, and so you know, where you before might have been able to uh, take more advantage of that, you know, they're going to play the market just like anybody else. Yeah. And you're not going to have the ability to as easily lock them up. You know, the, you know, yeah. employment is just that it's, it's for as long as I want it to be. And right. if I don't want to work for you, even if I have a contract, no, no court is going to make me work them. for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the price is going up and, and price we is know, going up. yeah. Absolutely. And we, we, we saw it. One of our centers, they just finished negotiating a contract, hadn't signed it yet. And the CRNAs came back and said, by the way, we're leaving. <laughs> and because we just offered $50,000 more a year, what are they, what are they going to do? Well, you know, come up with $50,000 right. a year and renegotiate the contract you already negotiated. So, so you're, you know, the only potential recourse in some of these areas would be if you have a longer term contract, whoever hired them yeah. might be in tortious interference with your contract. Yeah, good point. Good. Yeah. The concern I also have is that it's easy to get angry at what's happening here and that's just not going to solve the problem we've got you know we've got to remain partners you know try to build up that relationship beforehand make sure that you're not ending up calling a lawyer next for that but i have that lawyer first right make sure you have a good contract uh, or, in you place know and, and again we we pride ourselves on being the type of lawyers that we would help you with your business decisions before they become legal decisions right that's a very good point yeah always look at those uh, we've been talking a lot about in our in our company and in the podcast about certain agreements this is a little bit off topic right now but you know the medical staff bylaws the operating agreements which i'm sure you work on in in your career the, those are documents i'm often pulling them out for, for new clients and i say my god this this hasn't even been looked at in 20 years and you're not doing anything close to what it says here so mm -hmm. be very careful I, I, absolutely and they'll be held against the center as well absolutely. right right yeah, and, sure. and it's tight when, when you're trying to enforce you know some of those medical staff expectations yeah Exactly. I think the medical staff bylaws in particular, and those are the ones I find that are often just completely forgotten. They throw it in a drawer and they don't look at it for 20 years. The operating agreement, because it involves the relationship between the partners, you know, that's a little bit more current. But the medical staff bylaws, which totally affect what's going on with right, the anesthesia because, group. You know, we, we only did them because we we're obligated to do them, not that's because right. we care what they say necessarily. And so we just got something off the shelf, which right. is not helpful right and you they know, might not have even gone through a lawyer for, that's frankly right. often yeah right. i find that so or or, or or even more importantly they're not they're not customized to your situation yeah, yeah. yeah right? i've seen that a lot Always thinking about our situation or you know we use the term living document all the time yeah. so these governing documents should be seen as something that should be reviewed regularly right. to make sure that they still meet your needs and here's my recommendation what we're doing within ambulatory healthcare strategies we're we're encouraging our our uh, listeners to do this also is include in the annual things you're looking at 
And then, you know, you have to look at your policies and procedures. You have to, you know, look at your quality improvement program, risk management, et cetera, including that to look back on your your medical staff bylaws and your operating agreement. Make no, sure would, you're totally would, in compliance. I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and work with your lawyer. Yeah, I mean, it may not be a compliance thing, but it, again, it goes to what problems are, are you trying to anticipate to avoid? Right, right. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate your time. This has been fun. It's been my pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. And next, we'll listen to Dr. George Kofinas, um, who talked about the importance of membership in the state association as an owner of an ambulatory surgery center. We're here at the 2023 annual New York State Association Conference, and I'm here with uh, Dr. George Kofinas. Uh, Dr. Kofinas and I uh, go way back. We uh, helped him with uh, the, the surgery center that he has in Manhattan, Manhattan, Manhattan Reproductive. Dr. Kofinas, tell us a little bit about yourself and about your center and your uh, practice. I am uh, an obstetrician gynecologist with subspecialty in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And, of course, reproductive surgery. And um, we built that center in order to be able to do the procedures that we do for the enhancement or restoration of fertility in a center that it is built specifically for that purpose. And, and I also have uh, Gabe Figueroa, who is the administrator for that uh, that center here. Gabe and I also go back. We're very dear, dear friends. I love visiting your center. It's on the 21st floor on right down Wall Street. It's a pretty nice view down there. Uh, Traffic problem? No, I won't go into that. So uh, we, but. we don't drive in Manhattan. <laughs> no, unfortunately, I do. Stupidly. <laughs> no, it's it's uh, it's a great place. I think uh, I think we have the highest ORs in, in yeah maybe New York, right? I, I think you do. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it is a unique place. Um, we've tried to create a, an environment that fosters a sort of calming and sensing place for the patients obviously our patients are uh slightly different than a lot of other specialties there's a lot of uh, emotion and and so we try to high motivation uh to be there high highly motivated but you know also they're dealing with things that they don't always understand 100 percent. so uh we try to create an environment that's soothing and and calming for them so new york is uh not unusual as a state that requires a certificate of need uh, you applied for the CON a number of years ago, got it from Manhattan Reproductive. You're actually building another surgery center. The two of you are working on a, a project that we're involved in also out in uh, Staten Island, which is coming very close. That's going to be opening. I, I haven't talked to Jenna recently to find out exactly when we're, that's We're be. hoping that we'll be finished uh, by the end of the year, um, targeting to start doing cases in uh, January 24. Gotcha. So the first question I have is, are you crazy to get a CON in the state of New York, you know, I mean, what led you to this, and and talk about the challenges you have and the challenges of maintaining it. <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> yes, because the process is unbelievably difficult. Yeah, and no, because after we got the CON and we built the center, our life has changed. Yeah, 180 degrees because now we have the luxury of operating our patients and performing our procedures in an environment which was built specifically for what we do. And this is a huge advantage, number one, for our patients, and number two, for us, the flow of the patients into our center is uninterrupted, and... um, the benefits to the patients are enormous because 
They don't have to go to the hospital. They don't have to be hospitalized. Mm -hmm. uh, they are discharged the same day with uh, minimal blood loss. Right. And, of course, great outcomes in terms of infection control and other complications. So I, I think the control factor is extremely important here compared to where you were before and what you had to do before. You, you control the environment. You control the quality. You control the equipment that you purchase. That is 100% correct, and I think this is the most important factor that contributes to the happiness of the patients and mm -hmm. us. And I'll give you a few examples. If we have, um, if we need an instrument, a new instrument, or a new piece of equipment, mm -hmm. uh, our decision process other decision-making process lasts a, lasts a few seconds. Mm -hmm. We decide we need it, we buy it next day. Mm -hmm. We don't have to go through committee after committee after yeah. committee, and at the time that the decision is made, the, the instrument or the piece of equipment is obsolete. Yeah. Um, and in today's environment, you can literally get it the next day. We can get <laughs> it the, literally yeah. the next day. Another, another advantage we have is that we control the quality of the equipment that we buy and yep. instrumentation, and also we control the uh, redundancy of the equipment. Yeah. And what I mean is equipment breaks, yeah. and equipment can break during the procedure. Yeah. And you have to have every single piece of, of the equipment that we use duplicated. Yeah. Standby, ready to be used in a few minutes. Yeah. So that is another advantage we have, which we did not have in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Of course, there were equipment to be replaced, but it would take 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. And you have the patient under anesthesia for 30 minutes waiting for a piece of equipment to be moved from another operating room, yeah. which is used now to bring it in the other. Uh, those are all tremendous advantages. Another Another advantage is we choose the instruments we will buy, yeah, not right. the hospital. Mm -hmm. Not somebody that does not understand what exactly we need, how exactly we use it. So this is another tremendous advantage. We have control over the cleanliness and everything else in the unit, mm -hmm. and that creates an environment which makes the employees happy, the staff, the nurses, everybody. And of course, that reflects eventually on the care that the patient gets and the patients are raving about that. Yeah. So Dr. Kofinis, you alluded to uh, staffing. Yes. And I think another area of control, Gabe, why don't you talk about the importance of being able to control who you hire and the quality of the people, the training, you know, which again, you don't get when you're working at a hospital. Yeah, uh, you know, we've, taken a different approach, I think, than traditional, given the fact that we've been faced with a ton of challenges in terms of finding experience. Yeah. And so we have tried to focus on what we sort of call our core attributes of an individual, which are things that they possess that you can't teach, yeah. right? Um, growing and training our own people sort of from a fundamental level of how the perioperative environment works in an ASC has proven to be successful for us mm -hmm. because you you know it's very difficult to go out there and find a, a nurse 
who have yeah. circulating experience yeah. in the ASC. There's just not that many, right? Yeah. And there's also a perception sometimes in the hospital environment, oh, I'm going to go to the surgery center because it's going to be easier, yeah. which is what? Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy, um, right. You know, that's something we struggle with. We're mm -hmm. still struggling with it. Um, giving, understanding the appropriate staffing levels that you need to mm -hmm. give staff predictability in their day. Yeah. That's a constant challenge, right? Surgery is not always predictable. You, right. you schedule a case for two hours, it can take longer than that. So that impacts everyone. So we've tried to focus on those things and that's across the board. I, I know we, we kind of try to hyper focus on nursing, yeah. um, but we kind of take this approach with everyone. I just uh, met with an anesthesiologist yeah. the other day and it was the same approach with even the doctors. Right, right. So that's yielded us some positive results. Yeah. Um, but I still think, you know, obviously, if you can find the experience, yeah. that that is also very important because even the method that we're taking gets you through a certain point, right? Yeah. But you can't buy experience. That just takes time. And so when you get into the situations where you have a code or you have a patient deteriorating in the OR, you see that experience kind of rise to the to yeah. the, to the top. So it's tough, you know. Um, it's a little easier for us. We're a single specialty, so we, yeah. the learning curve is a little not as steep. You're not jumping right. from ortho to urology to GYN. We do the same stuff every day. It's a relatively small population of procedures. It's a small, yeah. yeah, so, so you know, they get a lot of repetition in terms of the types of cases we yeah. do. So once you hire them, you, of course... May need to make sure they stay up, especially when we're talking leaders, you know, people like yourself and your staff and Sarah, your uh, director of nursing is in the room here. I know she's staying as far away from the microphone as she can possibly get, but it doesn't stop with hiring and training in-house. You, you constantly have to go somewhere else. You have to have information about the regulatory environment. And of course, ambulatory healthcare strategies helps your company. We're very proud to be part of it, but it's more than that. You need to have the support of the, uh, the other surgery centers in the state. So how do we do that? Yeah, I think yeah. I think I think we need to come together more as a community. Yeah, uh, I think you know traditionally you know this very well, having been here in the state for so long. We were very siloed. Yeah, um, surgery centers were almost islands unto themselves, where yeah. we were not a community at all. Um, reaching out to each other, not just for hey, can I borrow this piece of equipment, but also asking for best practices yeah. or hey, do you have an idea on a quality improvement study or you know, I'm facing this problem with uh, whatever it is. Yeah. We need to use each other as a resource and come together. I think hopefully the association is making a push yeah. to break down those silos mm -hmm. so that we can come together. I mean, we're, I think, 49th per capita in the country yeah. in terms of surgery centers. We are. We There's are plenty the of business for everyone. We're not, yeah. comp we're not competition. And so... Uh, you know, case in point, Staten Island, which you brought up earlier, has a population of 700,000 people with no multi-specialty center. Yeah. Ours will be the first. Yeah. I mean, we need to extend our, our hands out to each other and come together as a community. So, again, the, the membership in the State Association helps you to have those resources available, but it needs to come from the top, Dr. Capinas. You know, you, you need to uh, be supportive of the organization and make sure that your leaders in your organization are part of it. Talk a little bit about how you support. <laughs> Gabe has to be away from the center. Well, of course, you're away from the center right now, so no business is being transacted while you're gone. But when Gabe's not there, you know, you have a leadership gap. And But how important is it to be here? Uh, it is extremely important. Mm -hmm. First of all, 
uh, I mean, the ASC business knew because yeah. we only opened five, four years ago. I yeah. don't know many uh, other owners of ASCs and especially other owners that they are practicing surgeons right, right. like I am. Uh, but I think it's very important. We should exchange ideas. Mm -hmm. We should exchange ideas into practically everything, best practices, best equipment, best uh, instrumentation, ways to save money in, in, in doing the operations without compromising quality. Our motto and our goal is better quality, better outcomes with less expenses. Mm -hmm. Basically, we try to eliminate waste, yeah. which, is, which plagues the hospitals mm -hmm. and some AESCs. Uh, we have developed certain systems where we pick up the best instrumentation possible with the lowest cost possible. And I will give you one small example. Mm -hmm. Trocars. Yeah. They use disposable trocars, which is $350 each. I pay $800, yeah. okay, and I buy titanium trocars that they can be used in two or 3,000 cases. Now, if you break down the cost, the cost is pennies right, right. compared to $350. If you use four trocars, you add it already. Yeah. $1,500 on the cost of the procedure. And that's unsustainable. Then you become a hospital. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to do that. We want to really use the best instruments at the least cost, which helps us um, advance yeah. and add more services and better services. And, of course, it helps the bottom line. Well, and from an environmental standpoint, there's less. An environmental standpoint, point, we do not pollute the environment right. because all this plastic has to be disposed somewhere yeah. because it's not reusable and it's not re re repurposed. Whereas with the uh, sterilization of uh, the reusable equipment, especially if it is high quality, like titanium or uh, yeah. stainless steel, special for for sure, we do not pollute. You and I are about to uh, go and uh, kick off the meeting with a, a panel discussion of the future of the, the ASC industry. And uh, when we were preparing for it, you were talking uh, very strongly about your opinions about, you know, the challenges that you face as a surgeon in the highly regulatory environment that we have here. Can you talk a little bit about what you're, what, what you're going to say to our audience and how important it is to be actively involved with talking to the Department of Health? talking to the, the regulators, talking to our uh, legislators about this topic? Well, basically regulation is a problem that affects everybody, uh, affects the ambulatory surgery centers, affects mm -hmm. the hospitals, affects independent uh, practitioners in any capacity, especially if they have an office-based surgery. Mm -hmm. um, now, Sometimes we feel, all of us, and everywhere you hear complaints that it's too much regulation for everything, mm -hmm. that not only it does not add to delivery of better health care, but it subtracts because yeah. it's up resources that can be used to advance the quality of the care for the patients. And of course it is a burden because it distracts mm -hmm. everybody and make them lose focus from what their primary job is, delivering excellent health care to the patient. Yeah, and, and we need to make it clear that we not, we're not arguing that we need regulations. The question is, you know, do we need some of these regulations that have been created by people who don't understand the healthcare industry and are there 
you know, to, to deal with one issue that might have happened once in a in 100,000 right. cases. This is a major problem. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know where the problem is. Is it the problem that the people that really understand healthcare, they don't have the time and they don't mm -hmm. get involved? We don't get involved. You're right. I mean, yeah. Either because they, they don't want to get involved or because they are not asked to be mm -hmm. involved. I don't have an answer to this, but I think a lot can be done when, when cool heads get together mm -hmm. and really dissect the problems, the potential problems, and how to form regulators that will, regulations that will make sense and they will really advance the healthcare environment. I want to thank both of you for uh, joining us here and uh, Sarah in the background here uh, taking pictures of us as we're doing this. It has been a great uh, opportunity to uh, speak to an actual, you know, I don't, it's very rare that we actually have somebody on the show that actually owns a surgery center. So I think that's uh, something we need to do a little more frequently here uh, because we need your voices and we need to, to know that uh, we're here to support you. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks, Thank John. You. Thank you. As a leader in the ambulatory surgery industry, you already know that the ASC podcast with John Gailey is your ultimate free resource for staying updated with the latest news and information while ensuring your organization maintains regulatory and accreditation compliance. But did you know that we have two membership programs on our partner website, ASC Central, that can take your organization to the next level? For just $25 a month, our patron program will unlock a host of amazing benefits. Enjoy regular Zoom meetings with our hosts and special guests, access to recorded conferences like our credentialing seminar, conditions for coverage conference, medical director conference, and our most recent two-day multi-state conference. The patron program also offers a comprehensive database of policies, forms, drills, example minutes, and other invaluable resources to optimize your center's operations. For those centers that want even more, our new ASC Central Premium Access Plan offers a variety of online services to its members. The benefits include access to a wide range of services, including all of the benefits of the patron program, unlimited access to our popular boot camps, the ASC industry's most comprehensive training for ASC leadership. Members can attend any number of the ASC Administrator Boot Camps and ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camps and can listen to the recordings throughout their membership. It also includes unlimited access to the industry's most comprehensive infection control training designed for infection control coordinators and those that wish to take the Certified Ambulatory Surgery Center Infection Preventionist exam. And the program also includes up to five hours of private consultations by Zoom. For more information about these two programs, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com or click on the links in the show notes. And next, we talk to Dr. Joseph Puma about new opportunities for cardiology procedures. We're here at the New York State Association meeting in October of 2023 in uh, Albany, New York. I'm here with Dr. Joseph Puma, who is a uh, cardiac doctor. Uh, Introduce yourself, because <laughs> I, I, you know, we haven't had a lot of time to talk about your background. Hi, John. Thanks for inviting me. My name sure. is Dr. Joseph Puma. I'm the founder and president of Soren Medical which is the uh, largest uh, private interventional cardiology practice in New York City mm -hmm. and uh, founder of an outpatient facility in Lower Manhattan 
on uh, Wall Street and South Street. And it's currently an office-based surgery practice, correct? Yes, it's an office-based uh, surgery practice. We uh, have applied for LCON or in the process yeah. and um, also have founded the uh, New York Cardiovascular Ambulatory Surgical Society right. um, as uh, outpatient interventional cardiac procedures are now taking hold around the country, yeah. uh, but have yet to been approved in New York State. And, and that's the point that we want to lead with here is that for, uh, I'm not sure all of our listeners from New York State know this, but, you know, cardiology is, uh, uh, is now, you know, reimbursed or some of the procedures are being reimbursed by Medicare. It's, uh, this is not new. It's it started a couple of years ago. Um, but if you are in New York State, uh, what is your opportunity to do outpatient, uh, you know, cardiology procedures in an ambulatory surgery setting? Uh, well, the answer to that's pretty easy. It's zero. Right. Um, in states without certificate of need, such as Florida, Texas, uh, Louisiana, Arizona, uh, procedures, outpatient coronary stent procedures, mm-hmm. implantations of pacemakers, battery changes, things that are, yeah. you know, at this point in time, safe, routine, and often occurring, right. especially as the population ages, have been done in outpatient facilities now for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, the only state that has a certificate of need um, that has approved it has been Pennsylvania. And mm-hmm. that was, I believe, uh, last July and just went into effect this past mm-hmm. July. Uh, so New York State is uh, a little bit behind mm-hmm. um, from a regulatory standpoint. And unfortunately, patients have to still go to hospitals, which, as we all know, are not quite as efficient or way higher cost. Um, and the patient experience isn't quite as good. Right, especially post-COVID. I mean, we, you know, there is a huge role for for hospitals, um, but it's not the place. I mean, it used to be the place where everything was done, healthcare, but that's really not where we're heading anymore, nor can it be where we're heading. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I think that, you know, COVID, the, the, you know, the tragedy of COVID for so many of us, for the entire world, was, you know, obviously unfortunate. But it, what COVID did was it highlighted, mm-hmm. it, it really brought to the surface many of the uh, holes in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And I think they were exposed. Yeah. They were there already. Correct. Uh, but one of them was the hospital's ability um, or suitability, maybe is yeah, the right that's word. That's a good point. To be managing all of these elective, mm-hmm. safe, outpatient procedures in an inpatient setting. Yeah. And, and, you know, we saw also, for those that are not aware, many of the hospitals in New York, like I live in Rochester, New York, those hospitals are almost 100% occupied at any given time. Doesn't need to be, it doesn't matter the time of year. It's just that that's the way it is, that they're, the, the hospitals have been shut down to such a degree that, you know, that they're operating at what, what our regulators think is an efficient level of 100% at all time, but which means no leeway for a crisis like the pandemic. That's why we had to open up. That's why we had to, you know, park a, a ship in the middle of, uh, you know, the, the harbor uh, in order to take care of patients. Uh, during the pandemic, so uh, so it's it's not even a matter of this is the right place to do surgery because we can do it safely. We have no choice. We just don't have the capacity anymore in in the, in the hospitals to continue doing the same thing that we've been doing for a long time. Yeah, th- those are great points. <laughs> if the goal is access to care, mm-hmm. quality care, mm-hmm. and lower cost care, right? That's the the triumvirate of high value care. Yeah. Then you have to. Ask yourself the question, is the cost structure of large institutions, of health systems, 
the appropriate place to achieve that. Yeah. We now have 40 years of history in ambulatory surgical centers, right. having started with simple procedures, colonoscopies, right. um, some minor orthopedic procedures, ophthalmologic procedures. And now, after 40 years, routinely, all over the country, patients have joints replaced, knees and hips. They have their colonoscopies done and it's very safely in outpatient mm-hmm. facilities. They have all types of eye procedures, uh, cosmetic procedures. So the, the, the issue of safety, mm-hmm. I believe, has been answered. Right. Even on the cardiac side, um, the national societies have position pa- papers, mm-hmm. which have been very clear that um, outpatient cardiac procedures, coronary stent procedures, and diagnostic catheterizations are as safe as if they were done in a hospital setting. So what do you think the roadblock is? I mean, you're really intimately involved in this and working with your association to try to get the, the change. What are the roadblocks to being able to, to make those changes to, to get cardiology allowed in the surgery center setting? Uh, that, that's a great question. Well, cardiology in general, it's, it's always interesting. Uh, there, there's a certain amount of fear when it comes to cardiac procedures. Right. Everyone always you know, thinks of the, you know, what they see in the movies, the patient that has a severe heart attack and their heart goes out of rhythm and they're getting shocked. So I think, so I think that there's a misunderstanding of the safety profile mm-hmm. right now. Um, secondary, uh, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, I think you know, the Department of Health and the state have a lot, of, a lot on their plate, mm-hmm. quite Very frankly. True. And still, they are still recovering from COVID and yeah. the, the ramifications of it. Yeah, yeah and, and, and so, um, you know, getting caught up with, with where things ought to be. I think third, it's a policy issue as well. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the hospitals don't want to give it up. Right. Um, it's profitable. Cardiology has always been profitable. Yeah. And often the most profitable service line is hospitals talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that uh, they want to give it up. I think the other thing that's interesting now is that um, – since the passage of the Affordable Care Act and the, and the uh, rise, if you will, of mm-hmm. the health systems, many private practice doctors have essentially gone out of practice yeah. and, um, and either are working for hospital systems now, yeah. so they're employed, so they no longer have a, um, a, a dog in the race, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, speaking as somebody, I, I've never done cardiology in any of my centers. I've been in the industry for 33 years, you know, and, uh, you know, when it came on the, uh, the horizon, I was just telling you before we started the recording that, you know, we don't have any experience in it, you know, so it's scary right now. Now, and you're used to it. So, uh, you know, so talk to our audience about how we get past that scare, you know, that, that, that fear that they have that you referred to, but you know, it, it's not just the people out there, it's our own people. How do we convince them that this is something that can be done safely, that you're not going to have to, you know, uh, worry about transferring a quarter of your patients to the hospital after this procedure? Well, like, like everything else, let, let's look at cardiology in the United States right now. Most cath labs in the United States, about half of the patients came in through the emergency room with a minor or major heart attack. Those patients are not going to be done in an outpatient center. Of the remaining 50%, about 80% of those Mm -hmm. would fit the profile, normal kidney function, heart muscle function, good shape, no evidence or no signs or symptoms of congestive heart failure. Those patients are perfect for an outpatient Mm -hmm. um, procedure. 20% 20% of those have high acuity. 
Mm-hmm. They either have very complex heart anatomy that you may know before or at the time of the diagnostic cath, and you don't want to do that in an um, outpatient facility, or they have kidney dysfunction, mm-hmm. they have bad COPD, breathing abnormalities, or, or liver disease. And so a lot of it has to do with patient selection. Second, I think where the transition has to be. Most multi-specialty ASCs are essentially like a hospital OR. You have general skilled nursing staff, general skilled scrub techs, mm-hmm. and you have general operational equipment that you use. Mm-hmm. Cardiology is different. Yeah. Special radiology equipment the operating room actually has a big x-ray tube in it. It's yeah. not just an operating bed. And the technicians have to be specially trained in cardiac physiology and hemodynamics. Mm-hmm. But we have... They're out there. Yeah. I, I, yeah. You know, it's not We're already like, working somewhere else. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So it's yeah. not like we got to go to Mars to find these right, people. Right, right. And then like anything else, like we've done for years in ambulatory surgical centers, you get experienced people who have managed, you know, there are nurse managers out there that are outstanding that have managed cardiac cath labs and hospitals all over this country that have wealth of experience. So there is fear. And that was the first thing I said. I think that there's a, there's a fear there. Um, But I think that we can get over that. Let's remember we didn't, the first orthopedic procedure done in an ambulatory surgical center wasn't a hip replacement. Yeah, that's right. All right, let's be clear about that. That's very that. clear. That's very okay. good point. Yeah. It was a, a, you know, it was an incision and in, a needle aspiration yeah. of, a, yeah. of a, a knee joint. Right. Right. And and look where, how we've progressed. I, I think that's exactly the point. That it, you're right. I mean, we do, we do, we look at those two procedures very differently because one is that heart, you know, and you don't want to fool around. It's like when we start doing brain surgery, which we will be doing at some point, you know, I'm sure we're going to have that same fear, but we've got to get over it because this is the right place to do these procedures. This is, you know, you're going to have a much better outcome, much more. Ex- you, you said it right from the very beginning. Access is a real problem that we have. Um, and, you know, having access to high-quality, low-cost care in an ambulatory surgery center is our, our mantra every day. Yeah. I would bring up one, one other point, one other interesting point that I'm not sure people completely understand. You know, first of all, anytime you do any procedures, there's always a risk of a complication. Yeah. And, you know, hospitals, like ambulatory surgical centers, have complications. Yeah. And we all work very, very hard to minimize them. But in ambulatory surgical centers... The most common complications are usually anesthesia-related. That's very true. Yeah. In the cath lab, there's no anesthesia. Right, right. <laughs> it's it's actually more like an office-based surgery yeah. where there's you know what we call conscious sedation or moderate yeah. sedation. Patients just getting a little Versed or fentanyl mm-hmm. intravenous just to relax them and sedate them, but it's not anesthesia, and that's mm-hmm. usually administered by the nurse without an anesthesiologist yeah. present. Under the supervision of the under physician. Under the supervision yeah. of the performing physician. Yeah. So interestingly, I might yeah. say that the complication rate theoretically might actually be lower. Yeah. And it might be a safer procedure than bariatric surgery, which is taking yeah. place now in ambulatory surgical centers, hip replacements yeah. where they're staying overnight, there's risks of blood clots, yeah. you know, things, things like that. Well, and and the other situation we've been talking about quite a bit in the state association meeting here is the anesthesia problem that we have. So what you've just described is a growth opportunity for a surgery center that's not going to compound your existing anesthesia problem, as long as you have good, you know, nurses, obviously, that can do conscious sedation. 
a- absolutely. And and most absolutely, as we all know, anesthesia is going to become a crisis. Right. Very in, soon, if it isn't am- already. Yeah. yeah, in the ambulatory surgical center, and a lot of that has to do with a limited supply, a higher demand for anesthesia and CRNAs, and a reimbursement problem. Right. Right now. Um, so I, I agree with you. I, I see growth in ambulatory surgical centers. You know, if you, again, if you look back at it historically now and you, and you kind of just plot out the arch, mm-hmm. the next five years, ambulatory surgical centers are going to become cardiovascular centers. Mm-hmm. Those who, who 99% of the dollars spent in cardiology is spent in the hospital that's the usually the biggest yeah. dollar amount spent in healthcare on any um, service line or disease yeah. state. It it just can't continue, right? For so many reasons, every state, every city, their healthcare budget is strained. Yeah, it cannot sustain the growth, and so I think it's going to just take a little innovation mm-hmm. and um, a lot of work. A lot of work with societies like this. Mm-hmm that are getting the message out and that are doing the regulatory work and working with the, um, uh, your, your group that actually mm-hmm. manages ASCs. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll have that institutional knowledge to help, right. to help facilities and practitioners and patients do it safely, increased access, and lower cost. So if you were to predict uh, where we're going to be in a year, are we going to be closer? Are we going to be, you know, I, I'm probably asking you a very difficult question there, but uh, what, what is going to be the time frame for getting this based upon what you've been working on? I, I think this is going to be like one of those, like watching dominoes fall. You see that one domino getting ready to go, but it does, you know, it's kind of shaky. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't know if that shakiness is going to be one year or two years. Yeah. My feeling is if New York State led the way, yeah. They would all start flying down. Right. I think the pivotal moment, though, may turn out being Pennsylvania. Yeah, very good point. Because that was a regulatory issue. Yeah. They had to they had to pass a law. The governor had to sign it. Yeah. And and now that that has occurred. Yeah. Um, I you know it would be very difficult for contiguous states. Right. To to not move ahead because I mean let's face it if I lived on if I needed a coronary stent. And I live close to Philadelphia. I might just go to an outstanding interventionalist uh, in Philadelphia in an outpatient way. Right. I'd be there in the morning. I'd be home for supper. Right. And if the insurance company, you know, they'd be absolutely stupid not to pay for that travel, given the savings that they're likely to have as a result of going into an outpatient setting compared to the hospital. The reality is, is most insurance companies that, that that my group works with at a high level right mm-hmm. now, they are actively trying to motivate their um, the people they care for mm-hmm. to receive any care that can be done in an ASC to be done in an ASC. Yeah. And the leader of the pack, believe it or not, is Aetna. Yeah. Aetna is sending mailers out. They have nurses calling patients. They're trying to redirect you from hospitals for whatever you need yeah. to try and reduce expenses. Because we have this great message, high quality care, low cost. Yeah. And 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 so that may ultimately be the final push for that domino to fall. Yeah. Because the payers want it to happen. They they can't sustain the cost that they incur um, for patients for any reason to go into a hospital when it can be done safely mm-hmm. and more effectively. Um, in an ambulatory center. So that's where I think 
cardiology is going to end up. But I think, again, if you look, at least in the next five years, I would say the greatest percentage growth in ASCs is going to be in cardiovascular disease. Thank you very much for, uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Puma, for joining us on the podcast and uh, good luck. And we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on you and make sure our audience knows what happens when it finally goes through. I appreciate your time. John, it's my pleasure. And thanks for all the great work that you do. I appreciate it. Thank you. Then we talked to Chris DeCarlis, uh, and he was with Philips, uh, the instrument or the equipment manufacturers, about the vendor side of cardiology and the opportunities. And and Chris knew quite a bit about the national trends in cardiology, and he brought a, a very different perspective to this. I'm here at the 2023 annual New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers conference in Albany, New York, and I'm Sitting here with Chris DeCarolis. Is that pronounced properly? Yeah, DeCarolis. close enough. Okay. Better than enough. most. And he's we'll from Phillips. And uh, thank you so much for joining us and talking about cardiology and the future of cardiology. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me. So uh, when we were uh, talking before we started recording here, I was talking about, uh, you know, my time uh, as an uh, administrative surgery center. And I ran largely uh, uh, eye surgery centers in sure. those days. And uh, I could not do it without my friends, the vendors in that industry, you know, the Elcon, the Balch and Loms, uh, the Zeiss reps. And they became our best friends. They, you know, they, they, um, you know, they, they were not just somebody that was selling a product to me. They were, you know, selling a solution. Sure, absolutely. And, and that's what, uh, and, and right now, cardiology is the, the hot topic right. um, throughout the country. Uh, and and here we are in New York State, and it's not allowed. Right. right. And you know, so it, you know, we just finished talking to Dr. Puma about from the cardiologist from a cardiologist standpoint why it should be done. Sure. Uh, and now, but you have a national perspective. Dr. Puma is from New York. You have a national perspective. You know, it, it, so New York is is kind of an outlier, right. Right? right? So talk a little bit about the national perspective on this and what's going on in other parts of the country. Yeah, sure. So um, you know. Uh, Philips has had an out-of-hospital program since atherectomy was started in office-based labs back mm-hmm. in 2010, 2011. Um, strategically focused on, you know, supporting physicians in their exit to from the hospital to office-based labs. And, the, you know, peripheral vascular procedures, venous procedures, et cetera. Obviously, in 2019, when coronary diagnostics came on the radars for ambulatory surgery center, that made us kind of pick our head up and say, well, what, what's happening here? Are, yeah. are we going to see a similar shift um, that we saw in vascular procedures with coronary right. vascular procedures? Yeah. And then in 2020, um, CMS allowed for percutaneous coronary vascular intervention, PCI, to be mm-hmm. done in um, ambulatory surgery centers. Um, and so obviously that piqued a lot of folks' interests. Some folks um, had built office-based labs that were to ASC standard, mm-hmm. sort of sensing that this was coming or having knowledge that this was coming. And for them, it was easy to sort of just flip the switch, call it a, an ambulatory surgery center, get the uh, certifications and start doing coronary procedures right away. Um, but there's obviously some barriers to that, right. right? Like we talk about New York State, it's not currently allowed. Um, but, uh, you know, what we're seeing across the country is that those states, particularly obviously in the South, where there were no restrictions or laws against coronary procedures being done in ambulatory surgery centers, we, we saw really an explosion. Yeah. Um, and we're continuing to see that mostly in the private physician management company, private equity. Um, but we are starting to see the hospital and IDN shift into the cardiovascular ASC as well. The other thing that's interesting is we're seeing these states that previously had laws on the books 
like Pennsylvania, South mm-hmm. Carolina, shift towards allowing these procedures to be done um, in the ambulatory surgery center as well. So as we, you know, we're always planning three mm-hmm. to five years out, um, we do see more and more states allowing cardiovascular procedures to be done in the ambulatory surgery center uh, site of service. And the other thing that we see is more complex mm-hmm. procedures moving towards um, ambulatory surgery centers over time. Obviously, safe procedures that can right. be done effectively. And for us, you know, at Phillips, it's all about the patient, right? right and right. ensuring that um, we're really helping them, you know, achieve their their goals, getting back to living a healthier, happier yeah. life. You know, obviously, we know in an ASC, um, lower copays, right? So lower cost of care. So for patients, they love that. They love going to this site versus a hospital and having the procedure done and, and being um, being sent home, you know, within hours of mm-hmm. stepping foot in the facility. Obviously, we know lower infection risk in an ambulatory right. surgery center than in a uh, hospital. So, you know, we know we can have safer outcomes uh, from that perspective, and that that's really what we're what we're focused on is is lowering the cost of care, you know, helping our patients um, achieve better outcomes at, at a lower cost, and that's why we're so interested in this movement, the shift um, from of of cardiovascular procedures into the ambulatory surgery center. Yeah. I- so amateur healthcare strategies works in Pennsylvania, New York, many other states too. But uh, I think I was shocked when Pennsylvania yeah, sure. allowed it Absolutely. before New York did. Because <laughs> right. you, if you talk about a state that, you know, I mean, you know, their, their CON regulations are not as strict as, as New York is, but their, your ability to add new procedures is, is definitely uh, much tougher. And, sure. the, and the fact that they've, um, they've gone in that direction Seems surprising to me. You know, what what do you think are the barriers in New York, you know, from your experience? Have you had any opportunity to look into that? I know you're very active right now in trying to get, you know, New York uh, to to, uh, to recognize the, the value of this. Yeah, well, I know, look, New York, it's the Mecca, right? It, yeah. It's so, so many uh, teaching hospitals, fellowship programs there right. as well. So, I, and obviously, the hospitals are, are, are very big, very, very powerful in New York. That, that could play in. Um, to, to some of what's happening here. Um, but what I would say is, you know, as PCI first started to shift into ASC, we heard many people in many different states say, that will never happen. Yeah, right. Right. My state will would never allow this. You know, you it's kind of what happened with total joints. Yeah, yeah we're never going to be doing total hips <laughs> right. in, in surgery centers. Now they're routine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but again, we see this shift occurring. Yeah. And we, we do believe that in a majority of the states that are currently, there's laws in the books or certificate of need is, is you know, such a high barrier that you know, folks are t- even today saying, well, that may never happen, Massachusetts, yeah. California, et cetera. Um, we do see over time PCI shifting even in, in those states, which are you know, um, probably most reluctant to or, or will be one of the last to yeah. allow this procedure to be done. So, Chris, talk to my audience who is sitting there saying, you know, I've been doing eye surgery for years. I've been doing GI procedures for years. I've been doing arthroscopies for years. Yeah, sure. I, I've never touched a heart. I don't want to be anywhere close to that. That's got to be scary, you yeah. know, to me. What, what, what type of barriers? Now, the first thing I'd say is, you know, obviously, there's a lot of support out there. This is being done out there. But, you know, what, what, 
what is your answer to that? Speaking from a vendor standpoint, yeah, well, and the support that that would be provided to them. Sure. Well, what we've seen in ambulatory surgery centers in a similar situation do is just bring in a coronary C arm, a cardiac C arm, and start to do some very basic uh, CRM procedures, mm-hmm. um, like pacemakers or battery changes, right? Yeah. Um, that way you don't have to dive into the deep end of the pool, yeah, right? You're yeah. just dipping your toes in to see, you know, do I have, is there a physician who can come and do those procedures? Is the referral network robust enough, right? Yeah. If, and then you can, you can decide, is it, is it worth the investment, right? Cause we know converting a, an existing operating yeah. room to a, a, a cardiovascular lab, not even counting equipment is going to be close to a million dollars. Right. right? right. Um, and then obviously all the devices you'll need to bring in to support those PCI procedures. And mo- most companies will uh, consign a majority of those products, but you will have to purchase some devices as well. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's ways to sort of lower the barrier and and start small and grow, grow into mm-hmm. Um, that facility where you're doing, you know, PCI and you're equipped to do the future cardiovascular procedures. Um, but I mean, if it, it, we do know that cardiovascular is the fastest growing ASC specialty mm-hmm. today. Um, and we do know that the payers, if you, you know, United Health says that a shift of cardiovascular procedures to the ASC will save the healthcare system 59% from an expense perspective, right? So we know the payers <clears throat> are very interested in these procedures shifting. Um, and, and, and Medicare recognizes Me- that they're already starting that process. Uh, that, you know, if Medicare, if, if, if we can save the Medicare program, that money, you can imagine what can happen with the, the, uh, the private insurance. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I get that it can be a, a very uh, daunting, you know, I've never touched a heart and, and it's scary. Yeah. Obviously you refer to the physicians for, for their thoughts there, mm-hmm. but I think obviously you're going to take your, your safe procedures there initially. We're not going to be doing complex PCI. Yeah. Um, you're, you're certainly not going to be, you know, taking call and bringing in heart attacks right into your cardiovascular ASC that's just going to be reserved for the hospital. Um, but, but, you know, obviously we do see um, this shift occurring broadly across the country. And listen, even in the states where it's wide open, there's still some provider hesitancy, right? Mm-hmm. We still have some physicians that are unsure whether um, this shift to the ASC, whether they should take part in it. But by and large, you know, particularly the independent um, cardiologists mm-hmm. um, have have really uh, started to, to lead this movement. Mm-hmm. And we are starting to see IDN and hospital engagement as well. And so that's starting to pick up um, as we sort of anticipated it would. And we, we anticipate seeing more and more of that over the next few years. Now, it's scary, a million dollar price tag for the sure. equipment. Um, but, you know, that, you know, the financing of that, that can, that's probably, uh, that, that's a barrier you can get over relatively easy, you know, as long as you have a strong financial plan. You, um, Christy is also with us. She's off microphone, but uh, we were talking about fe- feasibility studies, which are so important, you know, in order to determine that, you know, financially this is viable and it will be viable. There's no doubt about it. But but speaking as an ad- a former administrator and now working with a lot of administrators, I and as a finance guy, I can get past the problem of financing all of your wonderful equipment. But what scares me is what am I going to have to do with my operating room? You know, how long am I going yeah. to be down? What is what's yeah. going to be involved in the infrastructure there? Can you talk a little bit about that? And and you know what would be involved in? Let's say you know we're, we've been talking a little bit about eye surgery, for example, sure. moving out of ambulatory surgery centers in the next couple of years. Sure. Well, sure. this is an alternative here. What would it take to 
to uh, assuming that you've got a properly sized room in the sure, first place. Sure. So. Yeah. So yeah. ACC is is calling for minimum six hundred square foot room. Okay. So right? that is a big, much bigger room. It's a bigger room yeah. than there is because of the the equipment that yeah, you're absolutely. putting in there. Yeah. Right. You have your four your four different sections, and you need the, the space for the equipment. Okay. Um, you're going to have a, a large C arm in the room. You're either yeah. going to choose ceiling mount or floor mount. That's really physician preference. Right. Most often, we're seeing ceiling mounted systems. So you're going to need rails in the ceiling. Yeah. You're going to need radiation shields, lights in the ceiling, yeah. et cetera. Um, you're going to need to have a control room. So a separate room where you're doing your monitoring okay. um, with a, a leaded window, leaded walls, so that that radiation is not escaping that room. About 120 square foot there. Okay. And then you're going to need a, a, a room for your equipment, essentially the guts of the equipment, your yeah. servers, et cetera, about another 120 square foot okay. room for that as well. And so, you know, when I talk about, you know, a million dollars, not counting equipment, that's really what I'm referring to converting that existing operating room to a cardiovascular operating room. Um, and it's likely you're only going to need one for the average surgery center. Is that true? Unless you're a super high volume and de novo cardiovascular ASCs. What we're seeing happen most often is they're hanging one fixed system in okay. one room and they're building the second room with the technology to do that in the future. But they have a cardiac C arm in there and that's where they're doing their CRM yeah. waiting for more complex PCI procedures to come or, or looking at their volume. But yeah. yes, existing um, ambulatory surgery centers that are adding a CV service line. Yeah, we're seeing one room. But okay. to your point, that at, during construction, that room is down. You right. can't use it yeah. to do your other procedures. And so that right. does create a, a challenge. And I think that's where, where, where you guys come in and can show sort of cost, right. cost uh, benefit analysis to say, hey, you're down for this long, but here's, here's what this looks like once, once we're open. Right, right, and and I think as we're uh, as all of us are contemplating the future of certain procedures that might be moving in, you know, the opposite direction yours are, you know, moving into the OBL uh, OBS environment. Sure, um, you know, we're we're going to have to make instructional changes. We're going to be going through you know, construction. We might be expanding for that matter, or we might be contemplating building a new surgery center for multi specialty. Sure, I think your message is very important. Even if you don't think you're going to be doing cardiology now, build that 600 square foot room. Have that extra, I think I just added up 240 square foot for a possible future control room right. and storage right. or equipment room. Um, so that, uh, you know, because the, the cost now sure. to add that is going to be far less than the cost is going to be to retrofit an existing center down the road. So it, think about it. And it, it boils even down with parking, yeah, right? Good point. Is, do you have enough parking spots yeah. Uh, yeah, per the requirements, right? Yeah. So oftentimes when an ambulatory surgery center adds a cardiovascular service line, they need to add parking mm-hmm. um, to their facility. And if you can't do that, that creates a barrier there right. as well. Especially with local codes, we usually demand a certain amount of code uh, spaces based upon the size and the clients that Absolutely. are coming through. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, those are some of the, the challenges, obviously HVAC, stainless steel HVAC, the, yeah. you know, all of those different things that, that, that might be different than when that ASC was originally built and having yeah. to now go back and retrofit the space. So, um, but you know, there's experts obviously, and we, we obviously point to those experts when, when our customers are coming to us and, and, yeah. and thinking about that service line is, uh, you know, there's experts in the room that can do an analysis for you and, and walk you through the process and what those next steps might look like. So the future is upon us. You know, now New York isn't yet there and you're, you're working. But thank you very much for working on behalf of the industry to, 
to get this over the finish line there. But, uh, you know, for those of you that might be listening from other parts of the country, it's time already for in many of these states. So uh, start thinking about it. And, and Medicare will continue to add additional procedures to that list that can be done. Absolutely. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't more than 18, 24 months ago, I sat on a panel where we were asking, you know, has, has the boat left the dock yet, yeah. right, on the shift of cardiovascular to the ASC? I think the question we're asking now is, you know, is it a sailboat or is it a speedboat? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so I think I think time will tell. Yeah. Um, but we're certainly starting to see signs in the market that that you know that are encouraging from a shift out of hospital to ambulatory surgery center perspective. It, it appears as though the shift is happening, yeah. happening and ramping up as we speak. And we need to be prepared to be able to deal with that. Yeah, that's right. I appreciate it so much, Chris. Yeah, Thanks thank, for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate Thanks. it. And Luke Wright and Anna McCarthy provided a legal overview of human resources in New York State. And this, uh, I talked to them after or during this interview about yeah. how much feedback they got during this uh, yes. this session. So I was and, in the I was in that session. Oh, that's right. And, yeah, they got stuck on like slide two or something. <laughs> right. I don't so think they much, were able to get through all the slides. But. Yeah, it was great. There was a, so much participation and and. They, they had a lot of good information. And they're very enthusiastic speakers, so they're, mm-hmm. we're definitely going to be hearing uh, more from them. Yes. And they also joined us for the uh, 2023 multi-state mm-hmm. conference, and yeah. we'll probably invite them back for 2024 also. So let's listen. This is John Gailey. I'm at the 2023 annual uh, New York State Association Ambulatory Surgery Centers Conference here in beautiful Albany, New York. I'm here with... Uh, actually, my lawyers uh, for for my company, and it's so great to have you here with me, uh, Luke and Anna. And uh, this is uh, an opportunity to talk with lawyers about their favorite topic, um, which is employee employee law. So uh, you just finished a session uh, for our audience, and and like I predicted, there was going to be a lot of audience interaction uh, and a lot of questions. And you could, you, I think, you said you could talk for another couple hours, right? Easily. Yeah. So. Um, for, for sure. Before we get uh, started, John, just want to know that um, although we are your lawyers, yep. um, attorney-client privilege um, <laughs> will only attach if no one hears our conversation. So um, is this a, do you have an audience for this? <laughs> well, we're not going to talk about my company, but. Okay. All right. Yeah, we, uh, thanks for having Anna and I here. We just gave a session on all the employment laws and ASC might need to know. We covered every single one of them. <laughs> and, and we um, were waylaid one slide in with nonstop questions yeah, uh, yeah. Fr- from the crowd. So it was really, uh, really incredible. And I should point out that you also spoke uh, for two hours during our um, multi-state conference, which is available to all of our listeners on ASCpodcast.com. If you're a member of the New York State Association, you would have been able to. Hopefully, you joined us for free at that point. It's no longer free. Sorry. Uh, but we're already planning 2024's uh, multi-state conference. And that was a great discussion that you had. Uh, but it wasn't that was uh, not focused on New York State. So what you're focused today was on on New York State. So what you know, what, I guess a good question to ask instead of focusing on what your presentation was, talk a little bit about the questions that people were asking. What's on their mind right now? So we got stuck on the New York State law update slide, uh-huh. uh, the slide that talked about what what happened in the last year in New York State. And every year there's a barrage of, of new laws that employers yeah. have to worry about. Um, I think one of the bigger ones um, that, that everybody was focused on was uh, the protection um, that attaches to taking um, legally protected 
absences yeah. or, or taking an absence from work that's protected based on um, maybe it's the, the FMLA, the New York State Paid Family Leave Law, the New York State Paid Sick Leave Law. Um, and basically that new law says that you can't retaliate or take adverse mm -hmm. action against someone for taking protected leave. Yeah. Um, so that means that if you've gotten an attendance policy where you assess a point against someone for taking a sick day, you can't do that if that sick day falls under New York State um, paid sick leave, protected yeah. leave. Um, so that changes a little bit about what employers do. Yeah. Um, really, because the leave was protected in the first place, we would already have been a little hesitant if an employer comes to us and says, I'm going to discipline someone because they've taken Take leave yeah. under New York State paid yeah. sick leave. Um, but now it's it's officially codified in New York State law. So something yeah. to, to be aware of. Well, and, and to that point, one of the things that I think happened with uh, with COVID too is we, we changed our whole mindset. It used to be, well, you're coming to work whether you're sick or not, right? And and that's not the way it is anymore. Anywhere, it's not just healthcare. You don't go, you know, you 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 you're sniffling and you're out of work for a Get while. The side eye. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I have this ongoing cough because of my allergies. You know, most of the time people you know move to other tables and restaurants, which actually kind of like. But uh, but of course that it causes some problems. But we, to your point, it's already naturally because we can't get rid of these employees anyway, because we're lucky to have them working for us. So we're going to do anything that we can to keep them on board. And we don't want them to come in when they're sick, whereas in the past we might have allowed that. So that's interesting and, and, and very good point. And in New York, we have not just paid sick leave, which is yeah. relatively new, right? They require yeah. to have a minimum amount of paid sick leave, but we have paid family leave, yeah. um, an insured benefit to take care of family members or yeah. bond with a newborn. We have disability benefits. And then I want to personally thank you for that because two of my employees, based upon the write-up that you've done in my employee handbook, are taking that. So thank you so much for doing that for, for us. I mean, I love it. They're, they're relatives of mine, so that's great. But it, it's a great benefit, but you're right. It, it really adds yeah. a really significant problem mm -hmm. for many organizations and staffing. Yeah, and that kind of a law applies to New York employers regardless of size. Yeah. So the federal law, you have to be at least 50 employees. This state law, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, and it's a uh, job protected and it's a paid benefit yeah. and it's a really great benefit, but can present management problems. Especially, go ahead. Especially when you're on the smaller side um, yeah. because you're worried about coverage. You know, if you've yeah. got one individual performing one job and they're taking paid family leave, they're not out forever, but yeah. potentially up to 12 weeks. Yeah, and that was the question I was going to ask is how does it, you know, what were the types of questions? I'm sure that was it is that we, we're not deep in these organizations. Many of our surgery centers are very, you know, tightly staffed and we can barely make it by right now. We can barely find anybody to do it. And we want that person to come back, you know, uh, and we want to hold the job for them. But in the meantime, how are we going to find somebody that's going to be able to do all of that work at a high quality of care by telling them that they're going to be gone and in a short period of time. And it really gets down to, there's actually a, a, a session that was done earlier. I didn't have a chance to interview that, that person. It was talking about cross-training and how important it is now to cross-train almost every position you have in your organization. Um, something, John, that we didn't really dig deep into, but is yeah. a new New York rule, is the uh, new job posting wage transparency yes, law. Yes, thank right? you. Talk you about may, that. Yeah. I don't know if you're looking for another job, um, <laughs> but, but when you look now, it's yeah. very interesting, right? You have yeah. to have a good faith salary or pay range posted with a job, and it just it's a big change. We were in Illinois uh, doing an episode in Illinois, and they have a similar law. And they during the uh, the interview. They pointed out, I don't think I actually interviewed, but I, during the, uh, the session I was reading it, I, I, I passed the news on that 
they said that, oh, by the way, New York has it too. And I didn't know anything about it. So, yeah. So what does that mean for us? Well, so it, it, the basic requirement is that you've got to change the way that you're drafting your job postings. And maybe you don't because you've already been posting a pay range on there. But if you haven't, you've got to include a minimum and a maximum pay range that you're going to pay within this particular position. It doesn't mean that you can't decide if you've got an excellent candidate and um, they ask you for a bigger starting salary. It doesn't mean you can't change your mind at that okay. point through the hiring process. So it doesn't tie you to that range, but, it, but exactly. you have to be a, uh, do a fair calculation. Exactly. Specifically, it's called good faith. So you have yeah. to have a good faith range in that job posting um, that you're going to pay within. And then again, you can make ad hoc decisions later to change that, but consistency is really important because you don't want to be making ad hoc decisions based on a protected category, mm-hmm. like only negotiating with men that apply, yeah. for example, versus women. And that's the purpose um, behind the legislation that, that generated this, I understand now. Exactly. That's It's tied to equal pay for equal work. It sort yeah. of all falls, falls under the same umbrella. Now, right. the other consequence of this law um, that isn't specifically rated, related to the job posting requirement and the obligations to put that information in the job posting, and you also have to include a job description, by the way, yeah. um, if you've got one um, for the particular position. But the other consequence is now you've got current employees. Yeah. Seeing what, but that's what all the questions were about, right? Exactly, exactly. And you can't avoid those questions, but what employers can do is proactively figure out what they're going to say when they inevitably get that question. Um, And and it is, it's going to require employers to think about how to address those problems. Mm -hmm. You know, is it? Are we going to tell them that look, we're raising everybody up to that level as of you know October? But we had to wait, you know, physically, we couldn't do that within our budget, but we're going to as of October. And that's when we're hiring someone new, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, whatever it is, I think take, take a a clue from the the law's title and be Mm -hmm. as transparent as possible. It's the way transparency law, it makes sense to be as transparent as you can um, to avoid problems, I think, going forward. And you probably should be consulting with your lawyer. I hate to make give any more business to you guys, but <laughs> I'm being yeah. mean to you today, aren't well, I? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but but it's important that at least the first time around you you yeah. uh, get it, some assistance. It couldn't hurt yeah. to have uh, somebody familiar with the the law as, as Anna is to to take a look at those postings and just make sure that we feel okay that mm-hmm. there is a good faith range. There's enough of a job description. Um, yeah. to meet the requirements and that we feel okay about it. And it really just changes the landscape, you know, yeah. looking around on whether you're on LinkedIn or indeed just to yeah. see actual ranges. It, it's, it's strange. Well, it's actually going to make my job easier when I'm doing feasibility studies and I'm trying to figure out the, the, uh, you know, what, what people are being paid. I, I mean, I'm, I, I mean, in, in some ways, let's let's look at the positive side of it. Now you're going to know what the competition is doing. Yeah, exactly. And we never had that data before. So let, let's let's lead with that. <laughs> Good news. You're going to know what the competition is going to do. Bad news is they will know what you're doing also. Mm-hmm. What else did the did our, our esteemed audience ask? Well, we got uh, hung up a little bit on marijuana. Oh. As, as you know, our presentation. So you're just passing it around? Uh, while well, our, our presentation <laughs> ended at 420. And on, at 420 on the dot, we got a question about marijuana. <laughs> yeah. So so as you, you probably know, John, uh, marijuana is yeah. lawful recreationally right, right. In, in New York. Yeah. Um, and along with that law came a law that specifically said that employers cannot penalize or hold yeah. against employees their off-duty lawful marijuana use. Yeah. And, and then the 
slow down, of course, always, if somebody yeah. is under the influence at work or you can prohibit use at work and yeah. on work property or with work, work materials. Um, but but um, subsequent guidance, right? You, you can't hold people accountable or discriminate against people for using marijuana off-duty. Has is explicit requirement that you are not to um, test for, for marijuana, you know, upon hire or really any time yeah. unless the government... Um, specifically requires you to test for that position, yeah. like say DOT drivers, yeah, um, or you're specifically required by a, a, a federal rule or, or federal contract, and those are kind of few and far between. Yeah. Um, so we got some questions around, you know, is that right? What yeah. if, you know, what if my employer is doing it, um, yeah. and, and just sort of talking through those issues. So, so just. I mean, we know if somebody shows up that's inebriated, of course, we have the right to, uh, you know, terminate them. You know, it's what we refer to in our industry as an incapacitated provider or, or employee. Mm-hmm. Um, are, those, as, are those rules different or is it, you know, I guess you can find out if somebody's inebriated a little bit easier than perhaps uh, under the influence of yeah. marijuana. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's, 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 it's harder, right? And we did yeah. get a question sort of to, to this effect, which is yeah. what if I really think yeah. that someone is under the influence of, of marijuana? You know, I, they look like it, they smell like it, they're, they're not acting normal, yeah, right. like yeah. it, you know, what do we do? Yeah. And I think that you raise a good point. If we think someone's been drinking, we maybe we can smell alcohol and we can require a breathalyzer, right? And a right. breathalyzer will be accurate and say yeah, exactly what's right. going on. And the same isn't true with, with marijuana, right? Yeah. It can be hard to, to really be certain. And our guidance there, you know, often would be rather than make the decision point around whether or not the person is actually under the influence, make it about their performance. Yeah. And if, if they are, not performing timely, not responding timely, doing mm-hmm. things that are unsafe, repeating work. Yeah. Discipline that. Or you know, having problems that. with other don't, employees. Don't get, yeah. Right. Don't yeah. get in an argument about whether or not they're under the influence. Yeah. Um, because look at the effect, not what exactly. the cause was. Got yeah. It. And we think that's often a better approach. Oh. And probably even with alcohol for that matter. So, um, yeah, it's I, just a little bit easier, I think with alcohol. I think it is. Yeah. 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 It is easier with alcohol. So what else? We did get a question about bullying, which I thought oh, yeah, was interesting. interesting so yeah. New York State has some pretty specific requirements around sexual harassment. Yeah. You have to have a policy on sexual harassment. You have to train all your employees yeah. um, on, sec- on anti-sexual harassment um, policies and procedures on an annual basis right. um, and as soon as possible after you hire them as well. Um, and so we got a question about bullying. Um, what do we do if we get a complaint about bullying? And, mm-hmm. and the, the quick answer is you look into it. Yeah. So just because you get a complaint that doesn't have to do with a protected category on its face, you know, mm-hmm. someone isn't saying um, she doesn't like me because of my religion, something blatant like that. Um, but you have an, uh, you know, an interpersonal conflict or um, something that is just not allowing your employees to work cooperatively. Yeah. The important thing is to investigate it without making assumptions about whether or not it's a meritorious complaint. Yeah. Um, because what you don't want to do is ignore that meritorious complaint and then yeah. have it blow up into a bigger issue later on right. um, and inadvertently create a hostile work environment because you've allowed complaints to go unaddressed. Right. Um, so I think, again, the bottom line is to make sure you're investigating those complaints. It doesn't have to be a full-blown investigation where you're talking to multiple witnesses, you're looking at text messages. Yeah. Maybe it's just a conversation with the employee who complained and the person they're complaining about. 
Um, but looking into it and then documenting that yeah. you looked into it, when you looked into it and what the outcome was, is going to be really important if it, if the complaint ever comes back later on or you get another complaint about the yeah. same employee. So I guess my comment being somebody that deals with quality improvement all the time, that's exactly, and for our listeners, that's exactly what we do when we're talking about incident reporting. You know, we're already used to doing it. I'm sure many of your other organizations that are not in the, you know, uh, that, that are not like an amateur surgery center um, are not used to that. But we are. So just think about that, you know, similar process, not the same process, obviously, because it's much more protected. But And for these employment laws, you know, the actual law that's on the books, right? No discrimination based yeah. on religion, race, gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in, in New York. Um, that's a floor. And, yeah. and so when Anna says we got a question about bullying, it might be about someone's favorite football team. Yeah. Right. And it's not illegal. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we can't have expectations around people, how people treat each other and work that are higher than the floor right. that the law sets, just like with a minimum wage. That's yeah. a floor. Yeah. That, doesn't mean that's, that's lowest, not what you pay, but that yeah. doesn't mean that'll get people hired and working. Right. 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 So Especially. we can go above the, the floor of the legal requirements that we Absolutely. have. So, you know, anytime I talk to lawyers uh, about um, employment law, there's always an elephant in the room. Uh, and it doesn't matter what state I'm in, but in New York in particular, um, we, you know, our nurses, our work, they work very hard. And sometimes they just don't have coverage. And sometimes they just, you know, they say, I got to work through my lunch hour. Can I do this? Can I go er home early? And it really presents some unique situations, no problems in New York. So now that I got two lawyers here <laughs> talking about New York in particular, uh, help our audience understand what that really means and how you realistically deal with that situation. So I think the basic rule, I'll start with the basic rule and then um, maybe Luke can, can jump in, is that if someone is working through their lunch break, they have to be paid. Yeah. So even if typically your practice is someone takes an unpaid lunch break, um, if it's not uninterrupted right. and they're ending up having to ditch that lunch break because something came up, they have to be paid for that. Or, so that's or they're the eating rule. and working at the same time. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't matter if they're actually getting their lunch in their right, mouth. Privately. <laughs> if they're working simultaneously, they've yeah. got to be paid for that time. So that's the basic rule um, and the most important rule oh, in this yeah. case. Okay. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Right. New York law generally requires that people be given... 30 minute on an uninterrupted yeah. break for their meal period. Where they're completely relieved from their responsibilities right. and are not interrupted and, by somebody else. Yep, so. And that can be unpaid. Right. And that is, that's a rule. There are very limited exceptions. And, and yeah. that could be where um, someone is the only person there and, and on yeah. duty available to, to, to do the thing. Um, there are also many times, practically speaking, yeah. where people don't get that launch either at the right time or it's not interrupted. Yeah. And Anna is exactly right. The biggest misstep you can make yeah. is is they didn't Feeling get the launch, but you're yeah. and and you're not paying them. Yeah, right. Right. If right. you're paying them and you recognize that it's an exception and and it's un unfortunate, but you pay them for the time they worked. Yeah. And then I'd also add trying to correct the issue by either on a go forward or even that day you yeah. weren't able to get your your break during lunch, but now you can go. Right. Right. That's helpful too. But the key is, if people are working, yeah. pay them. That That is a bigger concern. It would make us yeah. lose more sleep than the the missing the break or the not getting the full 30 minutes. Yeah, it's The very pay good issue advice. is the bigger one. Yeah, and I, I think for, from my standpoint as a surveyor, one of the things we always want to do 
is just make sure that we identify these problems, document them, be upfront about those issues, rather than have somebody put an interpretation on which was not what really happened. So it's it's far better to you know explain it, write it out, explain what you did in order to fix it, make it very clear that you paid this person for that time. And while it might not have met the, the, the regulation, you did everything possible to mitigate it. And then also try to find a solution later. That's the whole concept of quality improvement. Right. I think it's it's important that, as Luke mentioned, that it's the exception to the rule yeah, that somebody point. has to work through the, their lunch break. So making sure you're not scheduling with people such that it's impossible to take that uninterrupted no, good um, paid break. Or rather, be able to document that, that unpaid break. Yeah, be, and be able to document that you did build it into their schedule that you never anticipated. That's a good point. Exactly. I want to thank you both. Uh, I know you're heading back to uh, uh, Rochester, our, our, yeah. our respective homes, and I uh, appreciate your time here and have a safe trip home. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you, John. And the next interview was with John Morley from the Department of Health, and Lisa Altieri was there and kind of helped out with the interview. She That's did right. much of it. She did actually ask most of the questions, so mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. was a good uh, approach to us. Let's listen to Dr. Morley. This is John Gailey. I'm here at the 2023 New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's annual conference in Albany, New York. I'm here with Lisa Altieri and Dr. John Morley, who is uh, with the New York State Department of Health. And uh, so we're, we're just going to have a dialogue. You just finished a session here at the State Association meeting, a very well-received session uh, um, about uh, you know the relationship between the Department of Health and our state uh, ambulatory surgery centers as well as the association. Go ahead, Lisa. Uh, so thank you. Um, and thank you, Dr. Morley, for coming today for another session. Everyone's always excited to hear from you. Um, and you are funny. Um, one of the things I think we asked about was, you know, ambulatory surgeries are starting to actually come up and more and more are getting opened in New York State. But we're still 47th in the, in the country with the number of ambulatory surgery centers we have per 100,000 uh, population per capita. One of the questions we had asked you to speak to today was where do you think and where do you see healthcare going in the future in New York? Well, Lisa, thank you very much for uh, asking me to be here today, and thank you very much for the question. So we have a huge, huge system, um, and some people argue that it's actually not a system. Um, our, we refer to it occasionally as an open market or a free market environment. Uh, what we would like to see is more of a system. Ambulatory surgery centers are an absolutely critical piece to this. They provide efficient, effective care in a, the environment that's more local to patients frequently than uh, hospitals are, and, and an environment that uh, patients greatly appreciate. So there's no question that they are an important part, critical part to the system. But we need to be thinking more as a system. We need to be recognizing uh, that patients uh, have been falling through cracks. The IOM report in 2000 spoke about the quality chasm, and each time uh, patients would have a problem, it was frequently in the gap between entities. So what we're looking to do is me identify mechanisms such as value-based contracting, value-based purchasing, where you bring uh, all of the, the pieces to the puzzle together uh, everyone that's going to be providing care to the patient. And you make sure that you have warm handoffs and that the patients aren't falling between the time that they leave one office and enter the next office. Uh, that things are as smooth and efficient for the patient as, as can possibly be. Um, we're 
happy to support the increase that we're seeing and the ongoing increase in ambulatory surgery centers. We see the insurance industry is incentivizing this and we support that. So I think uh, ambulatory surgery centers um, you know, are uh, you know, a focal point of your attention, one of the pieces that we believe to be critical to creating the system going forward. And what do you think, uh, you know, the certificate of need application process in New York State, of course, is, is a bit of a limiting factor. It always has been. But uh, it has definitely been much more, uh, much easier to get a CON in New York. As a matter of fact, just looking at the growth of ambulatory surgery centers over the, the last five years, you know, going, I mean, we were less than 100 for much of my career in the industry. And now we're, I guess, we're inching up close to 170. Where do you think that uh, that process is going in the in the near term or, you know, even in the next five years with regard to the approvals and, and the types of surgery centers we're going to see approved? So the, it's funny you should mention that. So we are looking at our CON process right now and we are trying to figure out how we can make it a little more efficient uh, and smoother. Mm -hmm. um, it is, uh, you know, a bureaucratic process and one that I don't see going away in New York. Mm -hmm. That's correct. But, it, you know, we're at the same time that we're attempting to smooth the process out, it's also has been identified as a focal point for people to enter into the system so that standards could be set and uh, at, the, at that time as an entity comes into existence in New York. Uh, for example, the legislature passed the bill requiring the healthcare assess uh, equity assessments to be done. Mm -hmm. um, so there's opportunities at the time that an entity comes into an existence that's ideal to provide information and to set specific goals and targets. But we are, that said, we are trying to uh, make the process more as more uh, efficient as we possibly can some of that will be through technology, and some of it will be looking at what we think are the critical pieces and what's not critical, trying to eliminate some pieces. One of the things um, many of the, the members and the physicians in all the specialties are looking at is actually having a little bit more independence in their scheduling and how they actually can really spend more time with, the, with their patients and actually give the patients great outcomes and customer care. And so they're looking at doing different types of procedures. Um, you know, cardiology is, is one area. Um, but we are looking at different opportunities. Uh, where does the department on that? So right now we're aware that it does exist in other states and that there is... You some, talk about cardiology in particular right, here, yes. Correct, cardiology procedures. So we're aware it does happen in other states. And uh, we await somebody to come forward and mm -hmm. bring it to our attention here in this state. And we would have some questions about it. We're not against the idea, but we do want to know, while we're aware that it's happening, we don't know what the outcomes are, and we'd mm -hmm. be interested to find out what those outcomes are. And we'd look to see how this, the, the pieces are being assembled. Um, how do you risk stratify patients for this so that patients mm -hmm. that would require standby surgery or a procedure with additional resources aren't going to this setting? but that you do the patients that are otherwise, you know, comfortable in, in that environment and not getting any, not, not in need of any additional resources. So that's one area, mm -hmm. but we know there's a number of areas that, um, you know, I know in my history and, and, and Dr. Morley, you, you, I know you're dealing with right now is there's a number of hospitals that aren't actually making money or losing money 
on like labor and delivery is a big area um, that we know. And so that is something that during COVID, we tried to get some of the healthy births out of the hospitals and possibly do them in ASCs that were shut down at that time. You know, where is the department in thinking outside the box and some other opportunities um, in regards to some of those specialties that the hospitals say, you know, they're losing money on? We are always interested in people and ideas that are from out of the box, always. Um, many of them turn out to be terrific, but not all of them. So the devil is being in the details, mm-hmm. we'd be looking again to see how patients are being chosen. And we'd be looking to see what resources are being applied at the place of, of at the location of care. So it's a concept that I had, I'm not familiar with actually happening, but I'd be interested to learn more about it for sure. And as I say, said at the beginning, we're always interested in out-of-the-box ideas. I think you know the, the problems that we have today are not going to be solved by the solutions of yesterday. We uh-huh. have to be thinking new. I think one of the things that the association really wants to thank the department mm-hmm. is that there is now the acknowledgement that the Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers exists, mm-hmm. and we want to continue to partner with the department. And that is very, very obvious from, from you, from your division, um, from actually all the divisions, and, um, and the commissioner Commissioner McDonald was with open arms, very supportive of ambulatory surgery centers. Uh, We want to continue to do that, and we want to be a resource to the department wherever we can. So we're going to continue to try to approach you and and bring some of those ideas to you. And we need to make clear, too. I mean, I've been in the industry 30, 34 years now, something similar to that. And, you know, from the very beginning, the department has been great. But the response in the last couple of years has really been, you know, dramatically different. A lot of it, of course, sorry, you know, Lisa, obviously your relationship with our organization, your relationship with the Department of Health has been gratifying, but having Dr. Morley, who is really, you know, very actively um, uh, engaged and understanding of our industry has been very helpful too. Now that you know that we're different than ambulance services than (laughs) we we used to joke about in the past, but. We look forward to continuing a longstanding relationship between the department and the association. Yeah, so there was, a, there was kind of a humorous question at the end uh, where they asked, you know, what, are, what is the Department of Health doing? So I'll just bring it up, you know, doing to incentivize ASCs. And I thought your, your answer was very, very good. I'll just uh, tag something onto it after you, you give the response that you, uh, you gave to, the, to our listeners today. So uh, the, um, the department is a huge supporter of, mm-hmm. the in, of wanting to see an increase. We recognize that the numbers in New York State compared to other states is low. We are receiving applications. Uh, the applications are for new ambulatory surgery centers and expanding current ambulatory surgery mm-hmm. centers, and both are excellent, and we're fully, fully supportive. We recognize the insurance industry is yeah. incentivizing uh, the addition of of ambulatory surgery centers, and we're supportive of what it is that they are doing as well. Mm-hmm. If you have additional ideas, we're more than open to hear what those ideas are that we could do to support to mm-hmm. provide additional support. And, and that, and I would remind our listeners too that that's where we are. You know, I've gone through you know like five cycles of uh, you know uh, applications being put on hold because the hospitals were you know, fighting those applications. We're just not seeing that generally expect, except in a very specialized situation. So my answer, if I were you up there, as I say, you know, we are incentivizing by making sure that that 
application, the CON process has become much more smooth, much smoother, and uh, and that you know our our the people that are coming up with innovative ideas, such as the cardiology uh, or you know vascular access, of course, that's a, a huge change with with those organizations finally getting the approval. Though we do want to see some uh, four more get across the finish line there to you know to really improve access, and that's what it's coming down to is that we have an access problem right now, and we have a solution. We just need to get these things past the finish line so that we can improve that access to our to our patients. Excellent. I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's, I think this is the first time we've actually had anybody from the Department of Health on the podcast, so uh, I appreciate your time. Pleasure's mine. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And lastly, I had an opportunity to interview Lisa Altieri, who is the uh, uh, president of uh, CHC, which is the, the company that manages the New York State Association's legislative efforts. Mm -hmm. And we talked about a lot of different things related to the state association and its efforts on behalf of the members. And Sue, I had so much fun talking to her that I promised her that she would be the last mm -hmm. interview, kind of leaving yes. on, a, on a very uh, you know, positive, mm -hmm. upbeat note. So let's listen. This is John Gale. I am here at the 2020. I was about to say 2024. We're here at the 2023 annual uh, New York State Association Ambulatory Surgery Centers Conference here at the wonderful Desmond Hotel. They have treated us so well, haven't they? Lisa, they have. Here oh, it's been wonderful. Albany, and and we're in your backyard. You, luckily, you don't have to go very far to yep. to come to this conference. And I'm here with Lisa Altieri, dear friend, and a dear friend to the ASC industry. And and uh, she, Capital Health Consulting has been an incredible resource to the New York State Association. So thank you so much for everything you do. As we were getting ready for this, we're trying to figure out what we're going to talk about because we literally could talk for three hours about everything. And and of course, I've done all these interviews. You haven't said on, on all those conversations. So we thought we would just have a conversation about, you know, what's going on with the state. And, you know, so as I'm thinking about some of the issues that we're running up against, a, a big theme during this conference was our anesthesia crisis. And we were able to talk to a lawyer uh, about the anesthesia situation, but that's a lawyer's perspective. Exactly. And and we were also talking during the board meeting, and we were talking offline with you that this wasn't a this wasn't a, a situation that occurred um, slowly. slowly. It just came upon us very quickly. And that's not actually terribly normal in our industry. Uh, and, and of course, there's two parts of this that I'm worried about. One is the anesthesia crisis itself, but what else is on the horizon that could, could mm -hmm. happen to? So, um, you know, it, so you've seen what's been happening, the challenges that we're having, some of the deep, dis difficult conversations we're having about the role of, of CRNAs, uh, the role of conscious sedation nurses in the surgery center. I just want your take on, on where we should be going, what we should be doing, and, and is there any hope for, you know, for a quick solution to this? So I hate to say you are absolutely correct. 110%. This went from like, we're hearing about the issue mm -hmm. to where like 95% of the facilities are starting to say we're having right. a problem. Right. So you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, is there a quick solution? Probably not a quick solution, but I do think there's a few things we need to start to focus on. One is in Albany, there's been a lot of push for scope of practice and yeah. pushing scope of practice yeah. for a few reasons. One, COVID. Yeah. Two, the hospitals actually want the PAs and the MPs and the CRNAs to be able to do more right. without supervision from the physicians. Physicians cost more money, yeah. so they're pushing them out after purchasing up all the little small groups. Right, right. On the CRNA, there's two bills out there right now in Albany. Mm -hmm. One is to actually 
uh, acknowledge and licensed CNR, CRNAs. Yeah. Um, the other one. Well, let's stop for a second. Because yeah. I, I'm not sure all of our listeners completely understand yeah. that. Yeah. But when we um, when we verify the licensure of a CRNA in the state of New York, all we get is an RN license. Correct. Uh, and in many other states like we're in, uh, you know, there is a, a specific CRNA license. So we can't actually verify that they're a CRNA until we go to their national organization. So I just want to clarify that. Now, that's a great point. Yeah. So that's the first bill, which we all, I think everyone in the state is very supportive yeah. of that, right? We right. really need that to happen. Yeah. But the second issue, which is is really going to come up with a lot of the sp- subspecialties and the specialties saying no, mm-hmm. is is they want to be independent yeah. of the physicians. And in all honesty, all of the specialties, you know, the plastic surgeons, the dermatologists, and, you know, there's the orthos, you know, they're kind of questioning if that's really what Mm -hmm. we should be doing. Because we're thinking, do you want to lower the standard of care Mm -hmm. because of post-COVID what we're learning? Or do we want to kind of stabilize it and look at other things that we can do? And so I think, number one, support the bill. Right. or CRNAs and the licensure of them and recognizing mm-hmm. that. And second is, you know, where are we as groups to actually come up with some good ideas yeah. to actually give them some independence? Does it mean over the shoulder supervision? Mm-hmm. Does it mean in the next room supervision? So that's, that's one thing. Well, and, and I think to that point, the, the issue is we're not questioning the, quali- the qualifications, the, the capabilities of the CRNAs. It's actually more the person that's supervising them. Exactly. Right. I mean, we have no doubt that an anesthesiologist can supervise it. And and I'm an I'm an ophthalmology guy from way back. You know, I, I I love that profession. But do I want the ophthalmologist in the room doing you know doing a code? Probably not. And and no, nor no. do they you know want to do that. Right. So the supervision of an ophthalmologist over a CRNA that's questionable. Whereas on the other side, maybe a GI doctor who you know okay. probably has you know, a lot more experience in that sort of thing would be able to do it. But those are hard things. How do you start to separate out that, you know, which type of doctor, they all have MD degrees, but which ones are going to be the proper ones supervised? And that's a conversation that we're going to have to have. And that is one conversation that has not come up when I'm talking to all the specialties and to the medical society. That isn't something that they've been talking about. It's yes or no. That's right. That's a supervision, right? So that's funny that you actually raised that. The other thing is, you know, in the conversation with anesthesia, you know, honestly, going back to Dr. Morley is mm-hmm. really what drives healthcare is the dollar. Yeah. And so it's expensive. And why is it expensive? Because more and more physicians are leaving earlier yeah. than they would. They would continue to practice mm-hmm. if it wasn't so hard in New York State. Yeah. You know, MedMal, Grieving Families Act, and some of the other things going on is, is really kind of pushing that. And quality of life in some areas. And, you know, being, I mean, you can go to some wonderful places with, uh, you know, with better cost of living than here. And here you just have to earn so much more in order to be able to, you know, get the quality of life that you're looking for. Exactly. It's not an attractive state necessarily all over anyway. And, and the safety <laughs> down yes. in the city yeah. um, has become a, a huge issue, not just in the city, but out in Buffalo. Right. 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 We've had a lot yeah. of issues happen. I live um, in Rochester. It's one of the highest crime, you know, uh, murder rates in the, in the, in the country. Nobody knows that, you know, that, yeah, I it's, know that. yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah. So, yeah. And, and I live in Rochester. I, I, I haven't you know seen that, but you know that's right. something people are thinking about when they're looking at the newspapers, when they're looking at quality of life issues. And so the new residents that we actually train one of the largest areas, right? Mm-hmm. The, the largest number of physicians, yeah. they leave our state. Yeah. And so I've heard from some people that they're actually asking for more GME slots in New mm-hmm. York State. Yes, but we have a lot of empty 
GME slots. Oh, interesting. And then when the people come in, they leave. Yeah. So that's one big issue. Um, and then the other issue in regards to reimbursement that came up today mm-hmm. um, and has been coming up for over a year or two has been one the amount of money that we, the ASCs, get reimbursed for mm-hmm. versus what the hospitals get reimbursed yeah. for. We also mentioned today to doc, Dr. John Morley is that under Medicaid, an ortho mm-hmm. does not get actually the prosthetic reimbursed right. or the supplies. So it's like, well, let's talk to yeah. the Office of Health Insurance Programs about that. Right. So there's a lot that really has to happen. We have a lot more to go. Mm-hmm. Right, a lot more to do in regards to talking to the department, educating them on what we do now mm-hmm. compared to what was done yeah. in the, in in the '90s. And, and, and I think that's a, there's definitely been a sea change in in the way they're approaching this. That they are listening to us now, and it's not that you know I've never had a bad relationship in any way with the Department of Health, even when I was a president of the association. Yeah. You know, they they were all very gracious. They just didn't. It wasn't anywhere near the top of the radar. It wasn't even you know. It wasn't even on the radar, um, and now we have visibility, and and now we're part of the solution. And for all the terrible things that happened during COVID, COVID actually was uh, a, a moment when we suddenly became important in the state and mm-hmm. part of the solution instead of a problem. Right. And and that's the one thing I, I'm always trying. You know, I'm that that glass half full guy. You know, okay, yeah, that that kind of that. That wasn't great, <laughs> but but there are some positive things out of it, and and we know that the hospital situation. I, I, I was telling you the story. My mother was in the hospital, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, hundred uh, percent occupancy in September. Uh, the flu season hadn't even started. RSV isn't even out there. Hundred percent occupancy. She's in uh, on a, a stretcher in the middle of the hallway in a hospital that is fully occupied at this point, and we're not in COVID anymore, so we're not ready for the next crisis there. We need to find ways to get that pressure off the hospital and make that hospital taking care, doing those things that they have. I've I've said this before over the years, I want to see regular hospital occupancy rates at 70 to 80%. And and I'm an efficiency guy. Okay, I get it. But I want it at 70, 80% on normal so that they they don't go at 180% during a crisis. So, you know, one of the things, you know, so you're right. Um, COVID really made this this association really come together as yeah. a community. Oh, um, we we got on daily calls every yeah. day to make sure everyone, we were trying to get the most information out there. Mm-hmm. The other side of this was prior to COVID, the association really wasn't on the radar for the Department Correct. of Health. They didn't know that this association existed, mm-hmm. but they're becoming more and more reliant on trying to get the real information mm-hmm. from the association, which is excellent. Yeah. You know, the idea of hospitals being efficient and nimble is an oxymoron, and I don't think it'll ever happen. Correct. Um, And so one of the questions we've been having and discussions we've been having at the Department of Health is how is there a synergy Mm -hmm. between ASCs and hospitals, and which is why we want to be at the table for emergency planning, pandemic Mm -hmm. flu planning. I've already been talking to some of these folks, like, okay, we're, we're, we got to get ready. We're not right. done. And, you know, the plan that was developed in um, 2008 wasn't really implemented. Mm-hmm. It was implemented differently because things have changed. Right, right. We have to be more, more nimble, and ASCs can be much more nimble than the hospital. So there are a lot of discussions, right, that right. are going to be happening right now. 
Um, and I think you're going to see a lot of change. I right. think we're at the tipping point, which, by the way, um, was one of John Morley's favorite books, The Tipping yeah, Point. That, I see you talking about it. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and it's just one of those things. I think we're there now. And I think our position, uh, and again, hopefully our listeners have heard this by now, but we, uh, we have uh, in front of the governor right now um, a bill to provide a seat on the FIPIC, which uh, is the... Um, yeah, Public which, Health and Health Planning Council yeah, is, is the council yeah. that the Department of Health, once they've approved a CON, yep. bumps it up to establishment committee right. within the Public Health and Health Planning Council, and then Public Health and Health Planning Council has to approve. Right. And and we've been wanting to be there for a long time. And and truthfully, I mean, I remember in the the early years, there was absolute animosity sometimes against uh, these. And that's not been the case. As a matter of fact, we uh, we just had a CON in front of the Public Health Council, and we always put somebody there. 90% of the time, I was there for one of the meetings, and, uh, and uh, you know, they didn't even talk about our project individually. It was part of a group, and, you know, five minutes later, we're out the door, and, which was nice, but you know, kind of a big expense for uh, for yeah. little very little glory during during that meeting but we're appreciative of the fact that now it's becoming so normal there's not even a question about that I think having us on the council will provide not only a voice on the, the voting of those which is important but also the ability to discuss some of the issues that we have and and I think we gloss over that we kind of think about the uh, you know because the the CON process is the more you know public thing mm -hmm. out there but there's a lot of conversations that occur at that table that we want our people to be part of so the education mm -hmm. um, between what's happening in ambulatory surgery centers and the members of FIPIC, yeah. you have a lot of community people, you yeah. have advocates on the on Public Health and Health Planning Council, you have hospitals, mm -hmm. and you, know, you have surgeons. You really need, the, the average person doesn't understand the medical advancements yeah. that's happened. And, and, They've happened so quickly right. that people don't even understand. Now, I had someone from the legislature say, well, ambulatory surgery can't, center can't do X, Y, Z. And I was like, have you been in an right, ASC right, right, in a while? Right, right. Yeah. We need to do that. Yeah. And so I think that's something that's also something that we've raised with all of the members. Mm -hmm. You need to invite people into your centers yes, yes. to show them and be proud of what you're doing for your right. patients at all levels of government at all uh, levels yes, they right. have to see it yeah 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 and so so that kind of morphs into the last conversation which is just encouraging people to be part of the state association and one of your uh, your passions is not uh, not uh, i can get the the directors of nursing and the administrators there we we can work on that but getting the doctors there is a problem and so talk about the value that that we bring to to the table here you've you know, you've been with us for you know what is it five years now five something years. like that and uh and and how do we get those those last couple people that we need to be attending these meetings right. here well john you actually brought up a good um uh, something that's happened recently where a newly approved center, you know, didn't know all the ins and outs yeah. and what's required. And I think that is something that the doctors and the owners of ASCs really need to be involved in. Yeah. And we've started, today was our first, first uh, association meeting, or mm -hmm. sorry, conference that we've had, that we had three physicians yeah. that are pillars in their community. Yeah. And we're, not only did they want to come, but they're all going to reach out to other physicians to say, you need to be here. Right. You need to hear these discussions because there's things that you need to actually learn mm -hmm. and influence. Yeah. And that's something that they're getting engaged in. 
we've also we've also started a new society, mm-hmm. right? The society, the first thing I said was, you have to come to this conference. You mm-hmm. need to be part of this of this conference and learn from each other what's going on. Yeah. So we're really going to try to make a push. I think this year we had the largest number of attendees, the largest number of vendors, yeah. and we hit a new one, which was we also had decisions. Yeah. So um, I think I think I think this 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 association. I can't say enough about yeah. um, what's been growing in the community. Yeah. And really the growing passion. the passion that's the passion. that's here. Yeah, I, I was up until one o'clock in the morning because people just don't stop talking together, you know. And it and it's not, you know, how's your dog doing? Yeah. It's, no. it's it, it, it. This is deep conversations about the future of the organization, and uh, I, you know, and it's been like this. By the way, that's nothing new, you know. But you got to put people in the room in order to have that conversation. And of course, COVID put us a little bit behind, but now we're back. <laughs> and there's a lot of opportunities out there for our listeners to participate in this. By the way, it, you know, we, my company, Amateur Ethical Strategies, is a member of many state associations across the country. Uh, we pay less here for the membership loan than we do in virtually all the other states. And of course, we're happy with that as an association. We're making good money. I'm on the board also. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're making good money. I, I mean, you know, we're paying the bills, let's put mm-hmm. it that way. Uh, so this is a value that I can't imagine, you know, why you would not want to do that. The conversation, you know, I, I pushed to do the Article 28, you know, discussion yep. yesterday. And, and, and I got a little bit of pushback from some people who said, well, everybody knows the Article 28 regulations. Why do you have to talk about it, John? And, and you know, so I fought for it. I got it. And then when I was writing the speech, I'm realizing that I know the rules but I don't know the exact wording of some of these rules until you research it. And, and there was like shock faces when they actually saw the wording of those regulations and saw that out there. So those things that we take for granted that we think we know completely, we need to de- delve deeply into and make sure our members are, are the most educated individuals about what our regulatory environment is, you know, and, and actually all other aspects of it. One of the and that's things, what we do here. One of the things I think that we did the first year we started working, Capital Health Consulting started working right. with the with the association. Was we brought um, the director over mm-hmm. the diagnostic and treatment centers and hospital surveillance right. program that oversees ASCs and is you know involved. And uh, I think something that I'm learning from some of the surveyors out there is mm-hmm. a lot of the surveyors for DOH mm-hmm. um, there is no longer a training academy. Yeah. So we used to have a surveillance training academy when I was in the Department of Health, and that kind of went away mm-hmm. uh, during the um, the former administration. Yeah. yeah, and I really think it's something that the departments like, were talking about. Yeah. Um, so it might be a great idea yeah. if we could actually bring a surveyor for ASCs from each region. Yeah. To come to our conference, mm-hmm. so we can hear because we're learning that, for instance. Some surveyors are asking for cultures of yeah, of, of of ORs, right? We just found that out, yeah. and we're, and and John's it's says, one of our clients actually, right. yeah. And yeah. John says, "What? I've never heard of that before." And, <laughs> and, so, and we've opened four centers in, in in New York in the last eighteen months. That right. that question never came up. So so yeah, yeah. that's one of the and reasons. thank you by the way. You, you're not admitting to it, but you were very instrumental in making sure that that was dealt with. Thank you so well, much. Thank you. Yeah. But I really but I really do think. That's an issue that we have to raise as an organization. Yeah. 
because then I can pump it up to the Department of Health and I can say, you have some inconsistencies here in your own quality assurance. Like what's happening between different regions? Let's make sure it's, it's, you know, if there's a standard and that's something that I think the training academy going away um, that actually has caused some of that problem well, for and, the department, and and especially if we're we're willing to pay them the cost for the transportation and things like that to, to come to these conferences, I think yep. that's a great idea. You know, Amateur Ethical Strategies actually has you know former DOH surveyors on yep. it who know all these new people out there who would love to invite them. As a matter of fact, we wanted them to come to the conference. We weren't able to, to expedite that, but you know, there's uh, there's uh, I, I I think and speaking to these surveyors now that they're friends and they're no longer uh, mm-hmm. you know they're no longer the surveyors there. We get you know we see what they're they're from frustrations were and you know they were relatively happy you know working in that environment and they know that environment they what they need now is you know that they can work with their colleagues to make sure that they get all of that that uh, that knowledge that they're going to need to be yeah. you know fully knowledgeable about it in the future we have to be careful with that because there there is the public health law yeah. for surveyors that have to be very you know we have to be mindful um surveying is a tough job yeah. um I actually had to go out in everything from acute care down to ESRDs, down to yeah. assisted living and nursing homes. And uh, it's a really, really tough job. And the state's having a lot of problems getting good staff, like yeah. everyone else, Absolutely. especially getting yeah, the nurses. So you know, we heard from Dr. John Morley. He has over 500 empty positions. Um, yeah. Nurses are the biggest issue. Um, so the same you know, pain points that the ambulatory surgery centers have in the hospitals are the same pain points they have as well. It's actually well. worse probably because they just don't have, you know, it's, it's not as a, it's not as sexy a job as, uh, as our, uh, our surgery centers and even the hospital jobs it are. Used we to get be, it. Yeah. When I, when I left, um, when I was recruited out of the county government to go to the state, um, I actually didn't want to go. Yeah. Um, I'm thankful I went. The experience has, was mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, but you know, it's, it's not as much money. Yeah. The, the, the benefits aren't as lucrative as they as used, they used to, be. to be. Right. They've cut them, you know, year mm-hmm. after year after year, you know, if you're a tier four, God bless you. I'm thankful I am. Yeah. Um, but, but there's like now tier five or six or seven. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's a hard job. Yeah. It's a great new job. I'll put a plug in for the department. Yeah. It's a great new job for someone that's gotten a little bit of clinical experience, really wants to understand and lo- learn yeah. rules and regulations. It's a great new job for people in their 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, before you start to have a family, it's, it's excellent. Yeah. So I'll put that plug in. Well, and I, and I think you know, we, we want to help provide whatever training. It's not even that we would be doing the training ourselves, but being able to give information about what it is so that when they walk into a center like the like our ambulatory surgery centers, they're not shocked at what they see or the types of procedures they're doing. Because I feel that way sometimes that, oh, you know, you're doing like total hips in the surgery center. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, by the way, I'm a surveyor, as you know, yeah, yeah. you know, with one of the accreditation organization. I watch my f- first hip, I think I told you about a year yeah. and a half ago. And uh, except for the noise, which was kind of interesting. Um, you know, it was it was shocking to me that that woman walked out of there. It's amazing. It was amazing. And, you know, and I asked her as a surveyor, I was asking, so how was your experience? This was wonderful. I, you know, I didn't have any pain. I didn't have to go to the hospital. You know, my husband was there, you know, right with me after the procedure within, you know, 10 minutes of the procedure being done. And I was nearly in tears thinking about my mother 20 years before. And, you know, she's a tough cookie. She wanted to be out of that hospital. And, you know, she, she would be a perfect candidate because she didn't want to be in that hospital, but she was there for seven days and it was the same procedure. 
So that's what we are doing. That's the excitement that we have to generate. And those are the things that surveyors need to understand. We're not just doing cataract surgery and GI upper right. and lowers anymore. We're doing much more complex. I'm much more sick patients. So. Right, right. Excellent. The future is great. It is. For ambulatory surgery. I think the future is great for healthcare. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, we cannot continue to do the same thing, right? Yeah. So that's the tough discussion and the education we're mm -hmm. trying to share with not only the Department of Health, yeah. but also with the legislature. Yeah. They don't understand. Right. And the general public still isn't up to speed on all the things that are happening. Right. And then the other thing that I think we really have to work with is we need to work more together with the Health Plan Association mm -hmm. and have yeah. some better conversations. That's a good point. Physicians, yeah. to their, they have medical directors that sit on those boards. Yeah. They need, we need to have them physician to physician. Right. So I think that's going to be um, one of the things I'm focusing on as soon as this conference is over. As always, Lisa, you know, I'm going to make sure that this is our last uh, interview at the end because, you know, the nice thing is with all the, everything else we've been talking about, it really hasn't all been negative yeah. at all. Um, it's good to end on a very positive note, and you've been wonderful about that. Thanks you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's very, that's very sweet. Thank you. I appreciate it. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.